Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show, our ongoing series where we are revisiting classic, you know, big movies from mostly our lifetimes and childhoods. We've done the Spider-Man trilogy in the past. We did the Star Wars prequel trilogy last year. We are now finally doing what you, the listeners, voted on and what we in our hearts wanted to do. So it, it went together very well, which is we are talking about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Peter Jackson film trilogy from 2001, 2, and 3. We are starting today with the Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and I will tell you guys a lot more about this later on, but there is probably no more movie more important to me in my lifetime. So this is a big episode for me, Sean. Yeah, no, for me too. Like, Fellowship, like, watching this been a good chunk of time since I had seen these movies, um, since the last time I watched them. And so it was a very powerful, like, nostalgic trip for me in many ways, and it made me... Just sort of, it, it just, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but it just made me be like, oh, maybe I just need to go completely down the spiral again, you know, of all the Tolkien shit. Maybe this time I will actually finish all of the Silmarillion. Maybe that is something, I will be the first human being to ever do that. I will, yes. I will venture out into the unknown, like, page 100 of Silmarillion, past anyone has ever read before. You know what I think you should do, Sean, now that you are... You're a student teaching, you're getting ready to be a professional English teacher. I think you should just, your first class, your first year, assign the Silmarillion to your students, and then you have to read it and go through it with them. Yeah, the the, the problem with that is that, um, one, they don't just let you pick whatever book you want, and two, you'd have to convince the library to buy, like, a hundred copies of the Silmarillion, and I don't know if I can, I, I would need to work really hard on that PowerPoint presentation for the staff meeting. It's like, well, this is this is where our budget is best spent is a like instead of us, you know, giving like a mythologies elective, let's spend all the money we would on buying like legitimate mythology books on buying a mythology book for a fake mythology. <laughs> hey, it's as real as any real mythology to me, man. I could tell you way more about Tolkien than I could fucking Greek Roman bullshit. And that is a fact to be proud of. I guess so. Um, there you go. And, and my English teacher didn't even teach us the Silmarillion. So there you go. Uh, I have never read that book in full either, Sean. So it's, it's a, it's a hard one. It's a, it's a dense. I would sooner read the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun by J.R.R. Tolkien than try to like read it again, than try to read the Silmarillion. That's fair. All right. Um, so yeah, we are going to talk about the Fellowship of the Ring today. I am very excited to talk about the Fellowship of the Ring because it is just, as I said, one of my all-time favorites. Um, more than an all-time favorite. It's a movie that's actually a little difficult to talk about in some regards because it is so tied into just, I don't know, what I consider my life story in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, but we will, we will get there. All right, but that's not the only thing we're going to talk about today. We're going to do a little bit of stuff. We're going to do a little bit of news. We've been off for a week. Uh, although I was here last week, Sean. I did the first ever solo Weekly Stuff podcast. Mm -hmm. So that was weird. Yeah, that was over the Academy Awards, right? Yes. I Because you weren't there for me, Sean, I had to watch the Academy Awards. And, uh, and it, was, it was a thing. It was actually, they were okay. There was a lot of stupid shit that happened. Um, I gave a whole little podcast spiel about it. Do you have any reactions to the Academy Awards? Um, well, one, I didn't watch. I didn't watch any of them. Um, but Spider Man won. Two thumbs up. That's Spider Man cool. one. Yeah, I don't give a shit about almost anything else. Um, other than that, you know, Spider Man won Best Animated Picture, but was 
horribly snubbed and not even being considered nominated for Best Picture because Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was the best movie that came out last year. Um, but yeah, you know, Spider-Man won its category and There's that a- was my own, literally my only dog in the race, being someone who watches like five movies that come out in a year. I think that is totally fair. Uh, you know, they do this weird thing where they have, you know, they have the best foreign language award and they have the best animated feature award. And I think those awards are good in theory, but I also worry that they really kind of ghettoize those movies because mm-hmm. you throw like a best a foreign language film has never won best picture and if Roma couldn't do it this year, I'm not sure whatever will, you know. If if Crouching Tiger right. couldn't do it in 2000, I don't know whatever will. Um an animated movie has never won Best Picture if Beauty and the Beast or Up or any of the ones that have, have gotten close didn't. I don't know whatever would. And so I like that there are awards for those movies because maybe in a world where those categories exist, the Oscars would just ignore them entirely. But it is kind of annoying that, like, like an animated movie like Spider-Man, like, Spider-Verse should have also had sound awards. Oh, it should yeah. Have, it should have had a script award easily. Sometimes animated movies get script awards, but it's rare. What they wind up doing often is just if a film gets a nomination in one of those two categories, it just doesn't get recognized anywhere else. Unless it's like every 20 years there's a Crouching Tiger or a Roma that breaks that. But um, it didn't happen with Spider-Man this year, and that's dumb. Because Spider-Verse is better than most of the movies last year. Exactly. But it did, It did. you know, Disney took an L for once um, for once, company's life. You know the last nice. time that happened, Sean? Um, I, I was reading about it, but I have forgotten, so you can inform me. The year we graduated high school, <laughs> 2011. <laughs> yeah. Disney has had, an, like, to the point where I'm not even sure why they have the award most years, because it's just if it's just the Disney Award, there's no reason to have it. The Disney Award is also known as money. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Anywho. But yes, so you can go listen to my solo podcast about that if you want to know more. Um... Yeah, it's a little. It was a very. It was a lower energy podcast because you know there was not this, this back and forth. But anyway, what are, what do you have? What have you been up to, Sean? You got any stuff to tell us about before we dive into the news? Yeah. Um. So you know we've been hot on that Destiny train for a while on this podcast for basically almost the entirety of 2019. Yes. Um, and and uh, they announced their well, they had this already announced, but they kind of gave some trailers and Bungie talked about what uh, next week the drifter stuff um in the sort of like gambit prime i think is what they're calling it the next set of like sort of the content drop is coming out and that looks awesome and when they started sort of teasing that stuff out i sort of felt like "Mm, maybe i should take a little bit of a break from destiny uh so about two weeks ago i started to sort of wean myself off of it and play it a little bit uh like a couple like every other day but i wasn't doing the obsessive i'm getting every single daily i'm getting every single weekly i'm getting like a bunch of the fucking weekly bounties in gambit and that kind of stuff i I backed off of that and instead i decided to finally dip my toes into this uh battle royale nonsense that the world has been has been taken by so and i decided i should do that in a way that one does not does not cost me any money and two doesn't force me to try to understand something that teenagers do um so i so Fortnite was out i can't do Fortnite. being a student teacher it's gone can't do it um that's something that teenagers do and it's not for me and it would make me feel weird if i was trying to play Fortnite. i don't want to play PUBG because i'd have to spend money to play PUBG. but luckily uh apex legends by respawn entertainment came out uh earlier this year and it is free and it is you know, a bit more of a traditional first-person shooter in design than something like Fortnite. It doesn't have any of that building bullshit in it. So I decided to give that a try. And it took me a little bit 
to get into it, and I think it has a pretty steep kind of learning curve because they, the tutorial in that game is way too thin to kind of teach you anything about how to actually play the game, especially if you have not played one of these before. But once I got over that kind of hump of learning how to play it, uh, I have gotten really into it, and I'm playing quite a bit. Uh, I have gotten four wins, four first-place wins, and I'm kind of doing a thing now where I'm, for people who don't know, Apex is a Battle Royale shooter, but it also has kind of hero characters, a little bit like Overwatch, although they're not as heavily differentiated as that. So when you start the game, you pick um, a character to play as, and you're always in a squad of three people. And so everybody has to pick a different hero. And so now I'm starting to kind of move my way across the hero list. And I think there are six free heroes, and there are two that you can spend money to buy. Um, so I, I haven't spent any money on the game, but I'm getting trying to get one win with each of the heroes. And I'll reassess at that point how much more Apex Legends I want to play. But it's a really, really good fucking game. It is incredibly snappy. You know, uh, Respawn, who made Titanfall, they are very good at designing that kind of just like raw game feel for a first-person shooter. It doesn't have any of the wall-running kind of stuff that Titanfall had, but I actually think that's one of the reasons why I prefer the way that Apex feels, because it feels more grounded than Titanfall did, and it still has a lot of momentum and speed to it, so you can like slide down hills and generate momentum and like move really quickly in situations like that, but it's not so crazy and frenetic that there's just people jumping all over the place and running around on the walls and, and grapple hooking all over the place and doing crazy shit like they were in Titanfall. It's more focused and more grounded, and it's and it sort of makes some of the combat encounters a little bit more predictable than they could be in Titanfall. And so Titanfall kind of always got away from me a bit because while it felt good to do all the wall running stuff, it always kind of felt like it got a little bit in the way for me of the core, just like aiming and shooting at dudes part of the game. Um, so Apex strips away some of that stuff, but it retains that really fluid kind of like heavily responsive feel that Respawn has. And, and that combined with just the loop of spawning in with a team looting stuff, like getting better equipment over the course of the game, the really high-pressure situation around um, any sort of gunfight in that game because if you are out, you are out, and you have to start a new game, um, drop in with a new team if you're playing with randoms. Uh, like, that sort of mix I have found highly addictive. And the fact that a Apex Legends game only lasts, even if you win, about 15 minutes long means that you get into that loop really quickly in a way that from what I understand of PUBG and Fortnite, those matches tend to last much longer if you live for a long time. So with Apex, you're just like kind of churning through it. And in a good game, even like games that you win, you typically have three to four different combat encounters. You either die at one of those or you win all those and you win at the end of the game. It takes about 12 minutes and then you get into another match. And so it's just very streamlined, very quick, very focused. Um, it has such a great just fucking game feel to it that... It is very hard for me to put down. When I start playing around, I it's that situation of if I do, if I do, you know die within the first five minutes of round, I'm like, uh, that one didn't count. I'll play another one. Oh, uh, that one. I'll play another one. I'll play another one, and I'll end up playing like an hour when I was really planning to play like uh, like 15 minutes or something. Nice. I, I have Apex Legends on my PS4. I've played a little bit of it. I've played a couple of rounds. Um, and I, I felt what you're talking about about the learning curve, like not in a way that I would say is, you know, horrible or anything, like like this game is bad. Just like, eh, this would take me a little bit of time to like sink my teeth into to really understand how to play it. Yeah. And and I didn't, and I just felt like I wasn't in the mood for that because I was still so on my Destiny shit that I was just like, I will come to Apex Legends at some point. Um, 
But it seemed really good. Like, it totally, I can totally understand why people are loving it. It felt super polished. It played really well. It was, while there were things that I don't, didn't fully understand from, like, tutorial elements, it is very intuitive to just pick up and play the basic controls and things. Um, and I liked the squad-based mechanics. Based on what I've seen with other Battle Royales, I do like that you have people you kind of have to go rely on. Uh, and they have a good communication system in there just with the buttons. So I thought it was cool, and, and I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, like, the one thing I do think they really need to do with the game is add in some, like, because they have a training ground that is technically a tutorial, but it's very thin, and it doesn't actually, like, it it doesn't simulate anything about the actual experience of playing the game. What I thought was weird is it focuses more on, like, here's how you pick up a gun and shoot it and reload it, and I'm like, I know those things. You guys made Call of Duty. Like, we still all use your first-person controls. What the fuck are you doing? Like, I don't need this tutorial. I need the tutorial of, like, the actual things specific to your game. It was a weird tutorial. Yeah, so it's like, I think they need to have a tutorial that simulates, that, like, just, like, fucking allow you to drop into the map without being in a team and get a sense of, like, oh, this is what the map looks like. Like, this is how you drop. This is what a jump master is. This is, like... You know, not everybody is going to want to hit all that tutorial stuff. So I'm not saying that, like, you need to play the tutorial stuff to play the game. But, like, make an optional one. I also think that they should put in some sort of, like, sort of, like, challenge system. Not challenge system for, like, when you drop into a multiplayer match. But kind of, like, a more advanced tutorial that allows you to test the weapons in a more real way. That's not a, oh, here's, like, pick up the gun and then you shoot at, like, a target um, you know, if they could like write up some like very basic um a like bot AI kind of stuff and create some scenarios where okay, here's a situation that this gun is good for. Here, let you practice with it. Try to get five headshots with the wingman or whatever. Here's like you know how you do some of the inventory stuff that they don't tutorialize very well because the game, if you're trying to do very basic inventory stuff, the game is very slick. But as soon as you have like a slightly more complicated, oh, I kind of, I want to split this ammo and drop it for this teammate and switch this scope and put it on this other gun, like anything fiddly with that, they like, it took me a little bit to figure out how to do any of that stuff because they never tell you how to, and you can, um, but you kind of have to dig into the menus a little bit to figure it out. So some of, like, that's the part of the game that feels very thin to me. It feels like they maybe could have let it bake for, like, a month or two um, while they were developing it and kind of put some of that stuff in. Uh, because I think for new players, like, I almost bounced off of the game after the first three days because I just wasn't totally feeling it. And I kind of pushed myself a little bit further. And then after and then after I pushed myself a little bit further, I got to feel enough of the game that now I'm kind of addicted to it. But I think there are going to be people, especially as the community gets better and better and better at this game, because they just, you know, there's going to be more people that have been playing it for weeks and months. It's going to be very intimidating for new players. And I hope that they put that kind of stuff in. Because um, also I think it would just be fun for me to be able to try because some of the weapons I just have never really used because I'm afraid to use them because if I pick it up and I've never really used this LMG before I don't want my team to lose because I tried the, decided uh, this is the round where I play and you try out this gun so every time I, I look at some of these guns I'm like I don't really like I picked this up one time and, and I kind of used it but didn't really figure out what the fuck like why does this thing need to charge up why would this ever be a good weapon and sometimes I see other people using it, and it seems like it is good for them, but I don't know what they are doing or, like, what pickups they have that change the way. Where, like, some of that stuff I really wish the game would tutorialize you on or give you, like, a training area that allowed you more freedom in how you, like, test and experiment with stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
But as we said, I, I am still on my Destiny bullshit, Sean. Mm-hmm. I can't stop. I really, you know, I was at a convenience store the other day, and I saw the big row of cigarettes behind the counter, and I thought, you know, maybe I should start, you know, I should try smoking, because it would be less addictive than this fucking video game. Uh-huh. Destiny, man, it's, uh, it's really good. It's really addictive. I've never poured this much time into Destiny at any point in its, its lifespan. Like, I am playing, I am objectively playing too much of it. Uh-huh. For for my own sanity and productivity, and I need to play less of it. But it's hard to tear myself away because there's just so much fucking shit in this game at this point. You know, I, I bought the annual pass, so I have the forges, and I've been doing the black armory stuff, and that's really good. And it's just like it's they're also at a point where like every new thing they add to the game is really good because I think they just have it down to such a science at this point. Um, yeah, it's really impressive. It's such a fun game. But I don't think you guys need another segment of us telling you why Destiny 2 is in a good place. What I think you might need, though, is a story about Jonathan being fairly advanced in the game at this point. I've been playing Destiny for five years. I'm almost at the max power level, which I've never been at in Destiny. And Destiny is the one first-person shooter I will ever claim to be genuinely good at. Um, And I am now frustrated at people because people are so fucking bad at Destiny, Sean. Is this mm-hmm. just me, or are other people, like, really bad at Destiny? And I'm not talking about, like, Crucible stuff. I'm not like, haha, they're so bad, I'm boning all of them. No. It's like, in PvE events, we get to... You want me to tell you some stories, Sean? And you can yes, tell me... Yes, go ahead. If, okay. Yeah. First off, Gambit. I know you really like Gambit, and think it's really So fun. fucking good. It's so it, fucking good. I think it's so fucking good in theory. What I need is teammates who know about the moats. I need teammates who understand... That when the big thing comes up on your map and says enemies are over there, you have to first go over there and fight the enemies. Fighting the enemies requires firing at them with your fucking guns. When you kill the enemies, you then have to go collect the moats, and if you don't collect the moats, they disappear. And when you have the moats, you also have to put them in the fucking thing so that the big enemies will come out on the other side, or else nothing will happen in the game. And I am astonished at how many rounds I play where people are just running around like chickens with their heads cut off, not understanding that that is a mechanic in this video game. It's very confusing. But that's nowhere near as bad as the Black Armory Forges. Have you done these uh, at yes. all, Sean, yet? Yes, okay. I have. They're really fun, except... Nine times out of ten, I get matched with a team that doesn't seem to understand. So the way the forges work, if you haven't played them, is they're like these big sort of like... I always think of them as firefight events or horde, something like that, you know, from Halo or Gears of War. But like waves of enemies come at you. There's this big thing in the middle that is the forge. And you have to kill uh, special glowing enemies. And when you kill those enemies, they drop radiant batteries. And you have to pick up the batteries and toss them at the forge. And when you get 20 of them in the forge, you move on to the next round. And you have to keep tossing the batteries because there's a time limit. The time limit is very low. It's like 30 seconds. But to get it up, you have to keep tossing batteries in and keep killing the enemies. But there's a lot of Destiny players who don't know that, Sean. There's a lot of Destiny players who will be running around like chicken. I, I will be just tossing battery after battery, and it'll keep going down because you cannot do it as a solo thing. Like, sometimes it does the matchmaking and, like, doesn't match you with anyone, and then you go in solo, and you have to drop out because you just can't beat one of those alone. Yeah. Um, and like most high-level Destiny events, they're made to be multiplayer. And, and I'm the only one throwing those batteries. Other people are like over in this corner where there are no glowing enemies. And they're just like killing like scions or like some low-level enemy. And I was like, what are you doing? This is... And it's so frustrating. Like I had... I finally unlocked the Go Fanon Forge, which is the second forge. And I'm so excited to get in there. 
And it, it like I played for an hour and was not able to beat that level because it, like I was just with the worst teammates. And then finally, if you get a good team going, it's great and it's it's it'll be really exciting and exhilarating when everyone's throwing the batteries in. But it's just again chickens with their head cut off. And the best story I have of this from the last week, Sean, is that I was doing one of the daily strikes. This is the playlist, the Vanguard strikes. We're playing the strike Savathun's song, which is one of the launch strikes on I want to say Titan. Yes, because it's the one where you fight uh, Hive, right? Yeah. Like, there's a big Hive dude at the end. Yeah. Yeah, Savathun, who is the, the big Hive dude. Yeah. yeah. And that level, there's a part in the middle where you approach... Um, well, you, you go into this like big area on Titan that you do for a couple of events take place in this area, and you have to kill a bunch of guys, and then like these like glowing worm things or whatever come out, and you have to take one of those and take it further in the level, and then there are two of the big ogre guys surrounded by a shield, and you cannot shoot them. What you have to do is the source of the shield is this big, you know, I don't know, gelatinous hive thing, right? And you have to take that worm energy thing and throw it into the, the hive bank there, and then that will destroy the shields, and then you can destroy the ogres, right? Yes. yes. Fairly simple, and this is also a common thing you do in Destiny, right? Yes, and it's again, it's a strike that has been in since the original Destiny 2, so it's, people probably have encountered this. Sean, I shit you not, the story I'm about to tell you is true. I'm playing through the strike, I know I have to do this, so I grab the little thing, the, the energy ball, or whatever it is, and I'm running. And when you have that, you can't fight. You can do some melee stuff, but you need your teammates to cover you because there's a lot of hive. And, you know, I'm fairly overpowered for these strikes at this point, but they are heroic strikes. They've added things into them to make them hard. The other two guys were at the end of the area against those ogres, firing into those shields relentlessly. Just firing, firing, firing. They would not, they didn't get it. It's it's all of their bullets were coming off of it, and you know, and saying invincible or whatever it is. Like, yeah, yeah, um, like immune, that's immune. for context for people who have not played Destiny. If you are firing at an enemy that is invincible because they have a shield or whatever, or like sometimes when they're like you completed an event and the remaining enemies are like despawning and like teleporting away, they'll be invincible. When you shoot an enemy in that state, big block letters that just say immune pop up for every single bullet. So if you're firing like a machine gun, it's just like immune, 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 and it is. Very difficult to not yes. get the message that you are firing at something that you are not doing any damage to. And because these two other players are not helping me, I die with the little worm thing. And so I'm like, oh, fuck. One of them, after I die, leaves not to come revive me. Because if you're ever hoping for anyone to revive you in Destiny, you're hoping you're going to have better players than I'm ever matched with. Um... But he just goes off and starts running around, I think trying to figure it out, but clearly didn't know what to do. I finally respawn. I run all the way back, grab the thing. I come all the way back. One of the dudes who left is just running around, chicken with his head cut off, not sure what he's doing. But there was one guy left, Sean, who just, he was firing into that shield the whole time until I come back with the energy ball, Uh throw it into the thing. He's still firing at that shield. And that must have taken like three or four minutes of him just like, It'll break down eventually. If I hadn't, if I had left that strike, Sean, he might still be doing it. He might still be Sunday night firing at that fucking shield because it doesn't break from gunfire. It, it is, as the game tells you, it is immune. It is immune. People are really bad at Destiny, and I don't get it. Yeah, I don't know if I've had, or maybe it just has never quite stood out to me when I've had bad experiences. Um, like for Gambit. I have definitely had occasional matches where I'm like, you people are just fucking idiots, and I am carrying this goddamn team, and nobody is doing anything. And, like, Gambit is one of those where 
if like one person you can maybe if one person's not contributing much you can be fine but if there are two people that don't really know what you're doing you it's impossible mm-hmm. like you will unless the other team is also like be handicapped because half the people don't know what they're playing um yeah it's just not the kind of game mode where it's the kind of game mode that if one of your teammates drops out it's impossible to win if you have fewer people you're never going to win a game of gambit so that is frustrating um but i i feel like my experience has not been typically i get matched with like really bad teammates for the forges i have had that experience and my theory is that that is probably because the black armory stuff has been ongoing for several months um, and we are only coming in now right at the tail end of it. So most of the people that are hitting the Black Armory stuff, many of them might be like totally new to Destiny and like never played Destiny 1 or on Destiny 2 because it was a PS Plus game, maybe something like that. And like most of the people that are like super hardcore Destiny people, they're still playing Strikes. They're still doing Crucible. They're still doing Gambit, but they are probably not doing a lot of the Black Armory stuff because they've already done it for like several months and so they've gotten most of the like major rewards you can get that is my theory because i have had very similar experiences with the forges as as you i had that theory because the the black armory stuff does not tutorialize itself all that well and i thought i could be getting matched with new people until i got to the go fan and forge which i mean to get to the point where you can do a go fan and forge event you have to have done so much destiny you have to have like gone through so many hoops it's the second forge. You can't play it without playing the first forge. Mm-hmm. It is, and, and I just, oh my god, it, it's just, just like screaming to myself, like, please, for the love of God, pick up a battery and throw it. It's not that hard, um, but it's okay. I, uh, you know, I've only had had one aneurysm from this so far, so I'll, <laughs> I'll live. But no. if you want to get really mad at, at getting matched up with bad teammates. Apex Legends can you can yeah. I've gotten I have gotten pretty because that's the that's that kind of game that's like if we are if we have one teammate that doesn't know what they're doing it is impossible to like if you get outnumbered in this game you're utterly fucked and it's like yeah. you motherfucker how do you and I've like now you know I was that person like a week ago I was that person in Apex is like I don't know how do you use a shield battery I don't know I don't know how you switch health items it's like oh you press this fucking D pad or something the radio wheel comes out now I'm since I've got some wins under my belt. I'm the guy that when I land, I'm like, hey, you motherfuckers, how do you not have a gun yet? Are you an idiot? Go fucking, go open that thing and it'll give you a gun, you fucking morons. All right, last piece of stuff is I've seen two movies and I'm going to review them very briefly because I want to save time for Lord of the Rings. One, All right. How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, also known as How to Train Your Dragon 3, is so good. DreamWorks kind of tried to bury it. They like delayed it by years. They finally dumped it in February, and then it opened to the highest box office of any of the trilogy. That made me very happy. It's a great movie. I genuinely think the How to Train Your Dragon films are the best film trilogy since Lord of the Rings, which is one reason I just wanted to bring it up. Um, I don't think any other film series since Lord of the Rings has had the scope, ambition, or emotional and narrative clarity of the How to Train Your Dragon films. And if you know how much I love Lord of the Rings, you know that's high, high praise from me. Please go see this movie. Please see the other two movies. They're so fucking good. I even went to see uh, How to Train Your Dragon 3 in 3D. I have not paid for a movie in 3D since I think Guardians of the Galaxy 1, which was an accident. I didn't know it was a 3D screening. And it was really good in 3D. Uh, So you should go see this movie, 2D, 3D. It's so good. Cool. And then I also saw, Sean, Alita Battle Angel. And I'm not going to tell you Alita Battle Angel is like one of the greatest movies of all time or anything. But it's a good fucking movie. It's really fun. It's got 
a very, very different kind of tone and scale and pace than a lot of action sci-fi movies. Um, it is very anime while also being very much an American take on this manga. And I think it is very successful at that. The main actress, Rosa Salazar, who plays Alita, is incredible. It is a star-making performance. It is such a great character creation. The CGI on that character is fantastic. I think the sense of world-building is great. There are some messy script elements. It kind of has, like, three climaxes at the end. Mm -hmm. But I also just really loved this world and wanted to spend time in it. And if it doesn't get a sequel, I'm going to be mad at you all for not seeing it. Because it's really good. And I want more of it. I want to try to see it. I'm definitely not making any promises. Um, but I, will, I, want, I will make an effort. You should make an effort. I, I, it's really interesting, and I'd like to talk about it because I just it's it's one of the only serious attempts in Hollywood to ever actually try to do an anime or manga property. And I think the only other there have been other serious attempts, I guess, but a lot of them are bad. You have something like Speed Racer by the Wachowskis that I think is fantastic. It's obviously not for everybody. Um, this is interesting. It's good stuff. Again, I'm not going to say it's like world-changing, but I really enjoyed it. Um, this is definitely the best thing Robert Rodriguez has done since Sin City 1 in 2004. He's been, you know, he's been lost down in Texas for a while doing weird experiments with Machete and things like that. So right. this is good. I liked it. Cool. Yes. All right. You want to do some news, Sean? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? Well, we've actually got a fairly Nintendo-heavy news sheet here. Nintendo's been making some yeah. news, starting with Reggie's retiring. Reggie feels on I'm aim. I still Fizame. Fizame, yeah. That's, I should I should know that by now. Yeah, Reggie Fizame is retiring. He I has mean, been, yeah, it's too, it's too bad that you learned how to say his name right when he's retiring. It's only you learned. He mostly just goes by Reggie. To be fair, it's um, true. After 15 years as the president of Nintendo of America, he is stepping down on April 15th, and he is, this is not a joke, being replaced by a man named Doug Bowser. I have to think that played into his decision to leave, to be like, not only can I leave the company in good hands and on a, relevant, a relative up note, because the Switch is out and it's a success, this is a good time to go, but also, my successor is literally named Bowser. You know, that's pretty on the fucking nose. So yeah, uh, Reggie's retiring. He has been the face of Nintendo of America for a long time, as we say, 15 years. So since we were little kids, Sean, like yeah. 10. And, um, you know, he is the rare video game executive. He is not a creator. He's not an artist. He's an executive who has forged like a real relationship with the fans. I think he's a very, he's a very scripted presence, but he's also a very genuine presence in that you know, he's a little stiff when he talks, but you also can tell he very much believes in the stuff he's talking about. I think he is an actual gamer. He really loves the video games that his company makes and that he puts out. I think that's infectious. He's, he, he's also very thoughtful in interviews. He gives good answers on the big questions of the day. And, you know, I think we can all agree that if there were more executives like him in the video game industry, the video game industry would be in a better place. And it's sad to see him go. And, and I just think it says something that most executive turnover like this in the game industry would not get much attention at all from fans this one did and i think that kind of says it all yeah no it's gonna be sad seeing him go because he has been i mean he's been around you know for longer than this podcast by a fair margin um which is how i measure time in my life is, he's is, double the weekly stuff podcast exactly um and so you know he has been as you said he's the face of nintendo of america and so for like our on our side of the pond 
like he's like he's the guy and he's the front facing man in particular the like you know for this the history of this podcast so much of like the nintendo stuff we talk about comes from reggie you know he was particularly in the wii u days he was like the like sponsor for nintendo and, and he was such a great presence it's not hugely surprising to me that this like when he when this news came out i wasn't hugely surprised mostly because it felt like the last couple of years ever since like like after the debut of the nintendo switch i feel like he's taken more of a background role and it just felt like you didn't see him as much in nintendo directs and stuff like that so it kind of felt like he he wasn't like front and center and like the face of nintendo the way he was for all of those wii u years on the latter Wii days and then like the really early Switch stuff, I felt like he was really front and center. Um, and he's kind of receded a bit. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be sad to see him go. I love Reggie. He's, as you said, he's, he's kind of like, you know, a really solid company man, but is able to sell the company line in a way that feels like genuine and honest that like he's able to really be earnest. And it feels like if it has always felt to me that like he was honestly passionate about what he did and passionate about Nintendo and and passionate about what that company was doing what he was doing for that company and that is something that a lot of executives uh you you don't get that from a lot of executives feel like they are suits and they are in their fucking you know at like penthouse whatever suite and they're making like the weird financial decisions and kind of know nothing about video games and don't really care and they were hired because whatever they're like you know we're a ceo at another company he you know he always felt like a true nintendo guy and that was came across so powerfully so i'm yeah, gonna miss it, him a lot i don't get the feeling like he's gonna go jump ship and do something at microsoft or something right exactly yeah. like he's retiring i think he's he's ready to just like be out of the industry and as he said like spend time with his kids um you know, I think it's important to remember, as you were saying, kind of the timeline there is that, you know, we had the death of Satoru Iwata during the Wii U days. I think, you know, obviously Nintendo of America is a different side of the company, but in terms of presentations and stuff, they blend a lot. And I do think Reggie picked up some of the slack that, because Iwata left a big hole in Nintendo, particularly, I think, its, its forward-facing side. Um, and And I think it makes sense. Nintendo is in a better place now. They have a permanent president. They've, like... I think they've filled in some of the gaps they had. They obviously have a very successful system. They have a lot of stuff streamlined. It makes sense that this would be the time that Reggie would would start to step aside. And and I agree. I'd, I'd kind of I hadn't even quite realized that he was not in the videos as much until he retired. And the same thing as you. I was like, okay, that does kind of make sense. We've been seeing less of Reggie. Um, but yeah, I mean, what do you? How crazy is it that the president of Nintendo of America is named Doug Bowser? I just. It is, yeah, it's it's like we're in the Matrix, Sean. Right? Like that doesn't just happen. Yeah, I remember. Like it, it didn't blow up as much as this, obviously, because this is a much like bigger position. But when he was hired for Nintendo several years ago, I remember like they're being like, "Oh, yeah, Doug Bowser working for Nintendo." It's like, "Oh, it's the, the, the guy named Bowser." It's like, "Ha, huh, that's funny." Um, but it was never. But again, it was you know a smaller, not a small position within the company, but not a position that people in the public like know anything about or care about and so yeah now that he's making the move to nintendo america or president of nintendo america it's like oh right shit right that bowser dude is working there and now he's going to be the president um and it does make me concerned that we're going to get very tired of this joke a year from now when it's like at at e3 2020 i dread there being continuous uh bowser jokes um but it's very good for this moment in history so let's enjoy it while while we can 
Well, and we've already seen from the announcement and stuff, he's a good sport about it. So I feel like the day is coming fairly soon when he comes out on stage or in a Nintendo Direct in a full Bowser costume. Like, it's going to happen. And, you know, good on him if it does. But yes, we will probably get tired of it eventually, you know, until they find a, a another successor just literally named Luigi. And yep. they do another year of Luigi, but this time it's for the, the new president of Nintendo America. Do they just replace Luigi in all those games with this hypothetical Luigi man? So it's like it's oh. cartoon Mario, but with like a super highly realistic 3D model, like scanned in version of some like middle aged Italian man. I thought you were going to say, and this would also be funny, he just, for the localizations of every Mario game, he swaps Mario with Luigi and bans Mario <laughs> from American Nintendo games. Yeah, I mean, that's the only way to have a truly authentic year of Luigi. Like, yeah. the year of the Luigi is the year of the no Mario. And so you have to put Mario, you know, in a box or in a cage somewhere. And have let, that's the only way that Luigi can actually shine. So speaking of Nintendo, we also have some rumors and reports, and I think one like actual announcement that has been confirmed uh, about a new like new signs in the relationship of Microsoft and Nintendo going further. You know, they've flirted in the past, maybe they've held hands a couple of times, but they might be going steady pretty soon because we've heard that Xbox Live is coming to Switch in the form of an app. Um not literally you'll play Xbox games online although maybe, but you could track progress and stuff. Then there was a rumor, not confirmed but came from multiple sources that Scalebound the game from Platinum, canceled by Microsoft in 2017, we all remember that, may have been resurrected by Nintendo as a Switch exclusive. And I think the reason people are giving credence to this is Nintendo and Platinum do have a very tight relationship at this point. With Bayonetta and with the new game uh, they announced at the last Direct, um, it, would, it would make sense, I guess. Um, but very crazy. And then finally, and this just keeps getting reported out, is that Microsoft is planning on having Xbox Games Pass come to the Nintendo Switch. They might port some of their games directly, like Ori and the Blind Forest and Cuphead have both been reported as possibly coming to Switch as actual games. But Xbox Games Pass itself, which is Microsoft's uh, subscription service that allows you to have a library of Xbox games on your Xbox One, might be coming to Switch. And the way they would do this is it might relate to Microsoft's Project X Cloud streaming service that they announced that they were working on at last year's E3, E3 2018. The idea being that you would stream Halo and you would stream Gears of War to your Nintendo Switch. If any of these things happen, Sean, they're fucking crazy. And they're mm. big, big news. Bigger than we probably have time to deal with right now. Um, it's possible none of this happens, but again, like especially that Xbox Game Pass one keeps get keeps getting reported. Yeah, so let's let's unpack these. Um, so Xbox Live coming to Switch as like an app that seems like a little bit weird, just because it's like I just don't know what value that as you know from like a user's point of view. I don't know why you would give a shit. <laughs> like why like why you would need that um so but it doesn't seem like something that would like not happen because it's a crazy idea it seems like so that i just don't understand who they they already have xbox live stuff running on switch with minecraft so like that feels like that's a done deal that they're gonna do something like that yeah it just doesn't feel like an an xbox live app on switch just doesn't seem valuable to me but that's not a reason not to put it on there because they presumably have that kind of stuff made for whatever their phone app is and stuff like that Scalebound coming back as a Switch game, that that's one that 
I am very, re- even though it has been sort of pseudo corroborated by multiple people, I am still very skeptical on that one. Like, I will believe the Xbox Game Pass thing coming to Switch before Scalebound because because that was a game that was first debuted in um, that E3 2014 that had Crackdown 3 um, and Phantom Dust, which that game got canceled. Um, that Fable game that got canceled and then Lionhead got destroyed as a studio was there. So it was like that Fable, just like dark E3 for Microsoft. You know, that's when Scalebound was also premiered and then it was in development hell for three years. They never showed off that game particularly well. They never pitched it very strongly. For people who don't remember, Scalebound had, was like, it looked like Devil May Cry, but with like a giant dragon in it also because it's like, here's like a moody, like snarky protagonist dude who's like kind of modern day Dante looking fucker. Um, and then he has a giant dragon that fights other giant dragons. Um, but they never it looked made a like strong it pitch could for be it. cool. I remember one of the E3s when it got its biggest demo. I was like, I don't know if it's there yet, but this could be interesting. Yeah, I, it did. It felt like they're like I think I feel like it was E3's 2014 and or like yeah, E3 2014 it was like oh this seems like whatever like maybe this game will be okay. E3 2015 was like. Oh no, this might have like something to it. And then E3 2016 is like, mm, I don't know about this game anymore. It's like my vague memory of like that arc of the game. I remember before it got canceled being very much like a, that game seemed like it was really rough um, place for me. It, it had kind of like fallen from grace in terms of how they were showing it. Um, but yeah, but then it got canceled in 2017, which is now two years ago. And the idea of that game getting resurrected and put on Nintendo Switch, like one would presumably mean the game would have to be completely redone for multiple reasons, um, one of which being the Nintendo Switch obviously is a less powerful console than the Xbox One. Like, I don't know how rough of a state the game was in because it was cancelled by Microsoft, presumably because it just wasn't coming together. Um, it's, yeah, just the idea that... Like, the idea that we could live in a world where Scalebound was announced in 2014, canceled in 2017, and then, like, 2021 or something is on the Nintendo Switch, that seems a fucking bridge too far. That seems like that's some crazy I don't know. fucking shit. That feels like just the ultimate faceplant for the Microsoft era, that, like, one of their most ambitious, you know, from that dark year where they announced all these ambitious projects, none of them came to fruition, and the only one that ultimately does is Scalebound, but on a different person's console? I don't know. That sounds like it could work with the current story of microsoft yeah it's that one is just so absurd that like you know i'm not saying that those rumors are like obviously false i think that there is like a good reason to kind of believe it because again multiple people have been talking about at least that there is some game that everyone thought was dead that is being resurrected on the nintendo switch that's like the original rumor and then it kind of started getting more specific yeah someone has heard something so yes there's something something weird is going on I just, it's so hard for me to be like, oh yeah, of course the Scalebound is going to come out on the Switch. But the last one, um, and I think the biggest one, and the one that I think is still very likely is this Xbox Game Pass stuff. Um, like, I think, it, like, from Microsoft's point of view, it would be highly beneficial for them if this, like, all this, or specifically not just Xbox Game Pass, but more the cl- the streaming part of it. That if all that xCloud streaming stuff, if that comes together and it works well, it is highly beneficial for Microsoft to put that onto every single thing they possibly could, which is basically anything that can stream video. And so there would be no reason why the Nintendo Switch could not do that. And especially the Switch because it's a game system. People will understand it more intuitively on that. Yeah, and it has, you know, buttons and, and everything. Like, it has the controller. It has stuff that you could use. Um, so, like, me- that would make sense. 
what makes me laugh is that if this comes to fruition, in a couple of years we'll be in the position where Nintendo is still a handheld player, Microsoft has a handheld branch that you can play their games on, and PlayStation is left holding the bag of not having a handheld thing anymore. Yeah. I guess PS Now is still out in the ether, but no one ever talks about it, and they don't put anything new on there, obviously. Um, so that's kind of funny to me. I mean, it's interesting. It's it, Why it makes sense to me is it's the rare kind of partnership in gaming where you can say this makes equal sense for both parties. Yeah. It would be hugely beneficial to Microsoft. And for Nintendo, like, it's zero skin off their back. It possibly incentivizes people to buy their system more than the competition. And it's extra stuff for their library. It's another feather in their cap. And it would also be a revolutionary move that's never happened before to have this kind of, like, just straight-up first-party games on another. Like, this will be rewriting the notion of game platforms, you know? Yeah, which is the entire notion of getting the streaming stuff um, to work. I mean, it would, like, I think the Switch would be a weird console in some ways because you obviously would not really want, like, you would not want to or it would be mostly impossible to do the streaming stuff with it handheld and on the move, like, unless you, maybe if you live in Japan or, you know, some countries in Europe where that would be more feasible. Um, And then also the Switch does not have a built-in Ethernet port, so even if you're playing it at home, it's going to be more hampered than other devices in that regard, but that's not a reason not to put it on there. It will just make it, like, it'll be complications for people that want to do that stuff only on the Switch. Um, The other part of that rumor of Ori and Cuphead coming over to Switch... That is also fairly believable to me, just in the sense of those games are, have always been kind of second-party games. Like, they are available on Steam uh, on the PC, so they're not only available on the Xbox um, like or, like, Microsoft Windows gaming store, the way that, like, something like Forza, which is a true first-party title for Microsoft, is only on the Microsoft store. Ori and Cuphead are both also available on Steam. So I could definitely see those games coming over to Switch specifically. And that would make sense of, like, here's, like, the beginning salvo um, of some Microsoft stuff coming over. We already have Minecraft there. Then when the streaming stuff comes over, wrapping in Xbox Game Pass with that in some way, um, all of that would make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, we're going to need to have a bigger discussion soon, I think, Sean, about the next generation and, like, what we're Mm -hmm. thinking about where things are headed because it's shaping up so fast. I think it's worth having a, like a predictions kind of discussion. And, and one of those is that it feels like Xbox is like building a fucking army of like things to have ready for the next generation. And like, we're not seeing it yet, but they are like fucking stockpiling weapons over here in the corner and they are getting ready. And I, you know, you don't see the same thing happening elsewhere in part because like Sony already has the land. They control the kingdom. Um, but I'm very curious, like, if the next generation is Nintendo keeping on keeping on with the Switch, Xbox totally rewriting their entire business model, and then Sony puts out a PS5 that is basically a more powerful PS4, I'm very curious what happens under that, yes. those scenarios. I also want to say, since I watched Fellowship of the Ring last night, you talking about, like, Microsoft marshalling its forces just... I was just playing the whole Isengard thing scene. Yeah, totally. Where they're, like, ripping the tree down and he's making the Urukai in the mud. It's dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun. I'm just magic that, but... Phil Spencer is Saruman in this regard, and he's, like, putting his white hand on employees and being like, my fighting Urukai. Yes, this just, like, weird fucking streaming video game Xbox Game Pass thing comes out of the mud. It can move fast in sunlight. Yes. (laughs) All right. Anyway, uh, we also got some Pokemon news this week, Sean. Yes, we got a Pokemon Direct. We got a a seven-minute Pokemon Direct. I don't know if that really counts as a Direct, guys. Like... 
Come on, don't misuse the term. It's sacred. Not really. Um, but yeah, we saw Pokemon Sword and Shield is Gen 8. I was surprised. I thought they were going to hold this back for later. But they did just kind of on a random day. <laughs> just decided we're going to show off Pokemon Sword and Shield. This is the new generation for Nintendo Switch. Um, I think it looks pretty cool. It's a gorgeous trailer. Like, the visuals are really gorgeous. I think some people were, like, hoping that this would be a bigger, like, complete top-to-bottom rewrite of everything Pokemon, a la a Zelda Breath of the Wild. It's clearly not that. It is clearly still building the same way all the Pokemon games have built on each other. Um, You know, it still has the cinematic camera uh, and things like that. But it is, like... It is a big, full 3D game. There's no, like, chibi sprites. Um, the, the cities look massive. Um, it's a gorgeous... Uh, it's called Galar, I think, is the new region. It looks really gorgeous. It's based on England. looks really cool. We saw a couple of the new Pokemon. The starters look pretty good this time out. There's Score Bunny, who's pretty cool. It's a bunny who lights on fire, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited. They look good. Yeah, it didn't do much for me. Like, it just felt like... Because, I mean, I... I wasn't really expecting or like didn't i didn't think that they would actually do like the full thing that a lot of people wanted of we're gonna now that we're on a console um and we're off of like the strict handheld platforms let's like really blow this thing up like i kind of knew that they were going to be more conservative because that's the way the pokemon company has been making pokemon games forever um but it did just feel a little bit disappointing to me to you know, when I saw the news break on Twitter, that's like, oh, that Pokemon Direct, they really did. I mean, this is another story of me at lunchtime at school, you know, being a student teacher on my phone being like, oh, shit, that, that news broke. Oh, let me watch the trailer in Japanese or whatever on my phone. And watching it and being like, oh, okay, this looks good. Like, it definitely looks better than the Pokemon games they've been making so far in terms of, like, the sheer visual quality and stuff like that. Like, it looks like it is benefiting from being HD and, and, and on, like, sort of more modern tech. But it's but it looks so much like a very, very high-res, nice, polished-up-looking version of one of the 3DS games that it just felt a little bit disappointing to me as someone, again, that's like, you know, I haven't really played Pokemon since, like, Generation 3, and they have never done anything since Generation 2, really, that got me really excited about Pokemon. And I keep on hoping, as someone who's, like, an outsider... Um, that they will blow that thing up and like really do something crazy and big with it, um, and and kind of convince someone like me that fell off that train a long time ago to be to like sit up and pay attention and really want to get back into Pokemon. This is not doing that at all for me, and it looks like a, oh yeah, this will probably be very good, but it doesn't. It's not attracting me personally in any big way. But counterpoint. You also okay. have, as you just said, not played Pokemon in like twenty years. Yeah, I mean, I have. I'm not ignorant of what they have done. Like I've but watched video and stuff. Like I've I, been keeping up with what they have been doing. I get but, that, but you haven't actually sat down and played one of the games for thirty hours. That's true. Yes. And my only point is, I'm seeing this a lot from people who don't play Pokemon, and and I agree. Obviously, they are not like reconstituting the entire system of having six Pokemon in your party, and each Pokemon has four moves and that sort of thing, which I do think is getting a little rusty around the edges, and I would like to see them play with a little bit. But I do think the advancements they've been making since Black and White in particular, and then on to X and Y and Sun and Moon, are underrated by the general gaming community. Um, like, I popped in Black and White again the other day into my DS, and... I don't know if I've ever seen a game push its hardware as hard and aggressive as Black and White did in really trying to create this sense of a full 3D world on the Nintendo DS, which could not do that. 
And they continue that in X and Y and continue that in Sun and Moon. And I think if the game's, like, mechanical elements have not evolved a ton, the sense of exploring a world and seeing a visual culture on display in the world in Pokemon, as well as some of the writing they've they've fleshed out a lot more, um, and elements like that, they've done a lot with over the years. Um, and they've really been, but they've also been on all those systems, you can feel them pushing at the edges where it's very clear to me that their ambition for the visuals and scope of this world is bigger than the technology they are on. What makes me excited about Sword and Shield is it's the first time it looks like they are on a system that matches their ambition and that they can push at those boundaries and have it be the vision they want it to be. So I guess for me it's less... Is this a complete reinvention of Pokemon where they blow the doors off and bring in people who have not played Pokemon in a long time? It feels like a payoff on a lot of work they've been doing in the trenches on handheld systems for at least 10 years since Black and White. And that has me pretty excited. Um, okay. Counter, counterpoint. I think one thing you said, it kind of like goes to some of my feelings on it, is that you know, because you've, you've talked about this before and other people have talked about this before of like that Pokemon has been pushing so hard at the boundaries of what they can do um, on the DS and on the 3DS and that like those games have been tremendously ambitious for the place that they are and like the technology that they're on. And maybe that's part of the feeling of it being on the Switch is not now they're pushing that ambition to the next level. It's more they have the same ambition, but the pool got bigger. And that's like from the outside looking in, that doesn't like inspire me to to go out for this thing. Like I get that if you've been playing the games the whole time, that's like a, oh yes, like I can like you know now the pool is big enough that like for them to be able to fill it. Whereas like where I've wanted Pokemon to be for so long is like this is the size of the pool I want, and then I want them to try to overflow that pool. Like that's kind of like the thing I'm looking for. Counter counter counterpoint. This is how debate works, right, Sean? Yes, I mean we did it for all four years in high school. It's this is very nostalgic for me. All right, counterpoint to the third, um, or wherever we're at now. The first Pokemon game on a system tends to not be the most ambitious Pokemon game on that system. So, like, Diamond and Pearl is, like, the Game Boy Advance games done to a bigger degree. X and Y is black and white done in more full 3D. But Sun and Moon and Black and White were the ones that really pushed those technical boundaries. So, we might be losing the thread of the argument at this point. But I think it looks cool. You think it looks less cool, but that's okay. It's yeah. It's well, it, it, you know, the one thing to point out about Pokemon Two is that it, compared to all of Nintendo's other franchises, it comes out much more rapidly. Um, yeah. And so you're not going to see the giant generational leaps you see in Zelda or Mario or Animal Crossing or whatever, just because they don't. They make a Pokemon game like every two years, and they make with remakes and everything. Pokemon is an annual franchise, so like you know. You're not going to see the evolution all at once. It it probably would behoove them to like take five years off of mainline Pokemon games, but that would be like thirty billion dollars in the dump. So you know, these games yeah. print fucking money. Yeah, and it, but it just feels like you know they've been they have not like truly blown Pokemon up ever. Like they have like at its like basic core, they've been making the same basic kind of game since for Japan 1996. Um, and so it's been a long, like, Pokemon games have been coming out for almost as old as we are. And so for me personally, like, and if again, someone who fell off the train a long time ago wanting them to blow it up, I have been waiting a very long time for them to blow up Pokemon and do something really radical with it. And if the games ever stop being anything less than the most reliably best-selling video game series of all time, I'm sure they will do that. But, yeah. you know. And they will, but that will never convince me to come back to the Pokemon 
No, I get it. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm just saying, like that's the reality of the situation. If if Grand Theft Auto were somehow an annualized franchise, it probably wouldn't sell as well as Pokemon. Like, I don't think people quite grasp how what an insane fucking sales juggernaut Pokemon is and has always been. Um, and I don't know, like the fact that they advance as much as they have in the twenty years is kind of amazing, considering that they could put out just about anything with Pokemon on it, and it would make an obscene amount of money. Yes, they they definitely do not need to try. Like they can just no. let's like well let's you know let's keep on let's fiddle with it a little bit. But we'll, we'll you know a fire, water, and grass type starter. We, will we ever see a Pokemon game that doesn't have those three as the starters? It's like it's like the new opening for a new generation. Will they ever be like you know what? What if this time instead of grass, what if one of them was electric? Well, would they? Is or is that a step too radical for Pokemon ever to? Take I don't know. Order? I don't. We'll we'll find out. All right. A couple more things we're going to hit rapidly. New Detective Pikachu trailer. I think this movie looks all right. Yes, it looks all right. Lickitung looks scary. I'm 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 used to the look of all the Pokemon now, and I have to give them respect. I never thought an American live action movie would have that many Pokemon in it, and would have that many like deep cut Pokemon in it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in the second trailer, there were, like, more than a handful of Pokemon that I didn't know what they were. And so, it was like, okay. This does not... I guess that that must... I assume that that is a Pokemon from something. This is the first American video game movie ever where I look at a trailer and I'm like, this was made by people who like the property. Yes. Maybe not love, but they like it. It's not like Tomb Raider or Doom or whatever other shitty video game movie you can name where, like, the people involved knew nothing about the video game. This looks like Pokemon people worked on this. So. I do say that I wish that they hadn't... They did the thing that, like, comedy trailers always do where they always go back to the same joke. Um, so it's like they went back and, and showed more of the Mr. Mime joke from the first trailer. I wish that they didn't do that. Like, I, I don't get, get why comedy trailers always ruin like one of the strongest jokes in the movie because each subsequent trailer just keeps on showing you more and more of it until by the time we have three or four De- Detective Pikachu trailers, you will probably be able to literally cut that whole like three to five minute sequence of the movie together based on footage they show in the fucking trailers. It, it annoys me that they do that. Very true. Uh, we also got images from the new Pokemon movie in Japan uh-huh. they're making, which is called Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolved, which we got f- confirmation of is a remake of the very first Pokemon movie called in America Pokemon The First Movie. Very helpful if you're trying to track them all down. Um, but it is a CGI remake. But keep in mind, Japanese CGI don't look quite like American CGI, like How to Train Your Dragon really nice and colorful and photorealistic. No, it's like a, a weird, like, pre-viz render thing. It looked scary, Sean. Scarier yeah. than the weird photorealistic Pokemon in Detective Pikachu. Yeah, it just was like... Because it it didn't... They weren't going for, based on, like, that render, it didn't look like they were going for the, like polygon pictures kind of look of the like oh let's try it's going to be 3d but let's try to replicate a lot of like the movement and style of of anime and like traditional 2d animation it looked like a no we're going to do like western style cg animation but with like japanese style models but without the budget of a western 3d cg movie and it just ends up looking like a especially because pokemon has always looked nice in hand-drawn animation it's not like the best anime but it's always looked really nice so. Yeah, I, it's weird. I don't know. I just don't. I just feel like I don't understand what that is. Like I finally don't understand why they're doing it. And in one piece of non Nintendo slash Pokemon related news, Dark Phoenix, the new X Men movie, got another trailer. 
I just wanted to check in and see if you had any thoughts. Jonathan, are they are they are they just fucking making a remake of X Men: The Last Stand? Is that where we are? Are they just with like some of the pieces moved? So instead of it being fucking Cyclops is a mystique that dies and stuff like that, but if they literally just fucking making X Men: The Last Stand again? Do you know who the writer director of this movie is, Sean? Mm-hmm. It's Simon Kinberg. You know what he wrote? Mm-hmm. X-Men The Last Stand We have mm-hmm. gotten to a point of reboot obsession in Hollywood Where people get multiple tries at the same movie What kind of horse shit is that? Where like, this would be like if Peter Jackson in five years got to make The Hobbit again <laughs> Like, okay, we whiffed that one, Peter <laughs> Here you go And you know what, there would be more of a justification for that This is just bizarre This would be like giving the Ghost Rider guy A hundred million dollars to make another fucking Ghost Rider movie Like, where are you getting this? Like, it looks better than The Last Stand, you know, but... Vaguely. I I just don't... You know, it does not have the whole thing about the mutant cure in it. It feels like it is actually... The Dark Phoenix stuff is the focus of the movie. But, like, yeah, I, I also love that, like, they just decided to full-on reveal in the trailer that Mystique dies. Because I assume... I don't just assume. I am 99.9% confident that Jennifer Lawrence only agreed to do this movie if they killed her within the first act. Mm-hmm. She probably said, okay, I will come back if you give me $10 million and you kill me within the first act and I'm only on set for two weeks and you only paint my face and have me in a costume the rest of the body so I never have to do the full body paint again. That's how they got Jennifer Lawrence into this movie. Am I right or am I right? I mean, you're 100% right. And it also is just like – it's. I just don't get at this point – I mean, there's so much I don't get at this point about the X-Men movie franchise. That's something we've been talking about for a while on this podcast um, ever since at least X-Men Apocalypse – um, and I do, I just feel like they think that the audience just adores Mystique. I, it feels like they think that like they, it was like Wolverine was cool, but fucking Mystique and X Men first Sean, class ever since then has been all Mystique you know all day all the time. They have an accountant who has a spreadsheet who has a an algorithm running that tells them how much they will make with Jennifer Lawrence versus how much they will make without Jennifer Lawrence because she is the star of the Hunger Games. That's why Mystique is in these movies Because Mystique in these movies is not a character She has nothing to do with any incarnation of Mystique She is just a vague Jennifer Lawrence shaped person Who has vague Not very clear powers And vague not very clear motivations in this world And that is why she's in the movies And everybody knows it But like I I guess It feels to me like yes I get that the reason why it's Mystique is because It's Jennifer Lawrence I think more of my point was they think that people are like, oh, Jennifer Lawrence is in this X-Men movie. We'll go watch this X-Men movie. It's like, I, you know, maybe I'm just very out of touch. I just don't think that that's how it works. Particularly for this kind of movie. I just don't get the sense that it, the people are like, is, oh, Jennifer Lawrence in blue makeup. Or you can kind of tell that it's maybe Jennifer Lawrence when she talks so you can hear her voice. I just don't feel like there's this raving band of Jennifer Lawrence heads out there. That are, that are like so at the bit. For any Jennifer Lawrence in any movie, that they there, would go watch these shitty fucking confusing ass X Men movies. They were at like the ninth X Men movie or something, and the continuity is all fucked. And somehow it's like the nineties or something again, which is basically when X Men One was set. But we're doing X Men Three: The Last Stand, which, like, honestly, we're even not that far away from when that fucking movie took place because that took place in what, like, two thousand five or some shit. It's just yeah. Like, they might like it's almost the timeline almost lines up again in a weird way it is like i just don't i just feel like if they think that jennifer lawrence is going to save this 
I think they're wrong. Sean, there has never been a brick wall that Hollywood will not happily run into over and over and over again. But with that, why don't we transition into a time when Hollywood didn't run into a brick wall at all? Maybe a, a different time, Sean, when when risks were taken, when movies were given the years of pre-production they needed to be good, when uh, uh, a bright-eyed Kiwi decided, I'm going to make the unmakeable movie, The Lord of the Rings. Let's talk about it. Finally, Sean, this is a topic I've wanted to do for like all eight years of this podcast. Let's talk about Fellowship of the Ring. Let's do it, Jonathan. It's hard to even know where to start. I guess we'll just say first off, if you've never seen the Lord of the Rings movies, please go watch them. They're so yeah. good. Um, there's a lot of other Lord of the Rings. And I guess that's where I want to start. Lord of the Rings is a very different thing now than it was in 2001. Mm-hmm. And I want people to remember that. Because we probably have listeners younger than us who don't know this. And we might have listeners our age or older who have just forgotten. Fellowship of the Ring was not a guaranteed hit. It was considered a massive risk. No one had ever done anything like this with the shooting three movies at once thing. And they're all going to be three hours long, big epics. This was not the era when Hollywood was, was obsessed with brands. That would come soon after Lord of the Rings. But we were not in that era yet. And Lord of the Rings itself was not considered like this giant multinational brand. It was a book. And it was one of the most beloved books of all time. In fact, it is the highest selling book of the 20th century other than the Bible. There's the Bible and then there's Mm -hmm. J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And those are the two highest selling books of the entire century of the 1900s. And that's kind of the position Lord of the Rings was coming into. Today, Lord of the Rings is this brand that has a shit ton of video games and it had a really awful prequel series and Amazon paid like $50 billion or whatever it was. It's not that much, but something like that. To get the rights to the books so they could make a TV series. And it is now saturated and we are inundated. And it is a very different thing than it once was. I think people even forget that the Lord of the Rings movies were big hits. They were not big hits in the Marvel sense of the word where they were just commercial hits. They were the best reviewed movies Every single year they came out, you can go back on Rotten Tomatoes and they they have these year by year. They were the 2001, 2, and 3. They are the number ones. Uh, Return of the King won 11 Oscars. It is still tied for that record. Fellowship of the Ring won four, including cinematography, which is a big one. Um, You know, these were kind of an old Hollywood style of hit. I think they honestly, in a lot of ways, have more in common with something like The Godfather or Lawrence of Arabia than they do Avengers. Um, certainly than they do the Hobbit movies, you know, which maybe we can get into because that specter kind of shrouds over them. And I feel like the time of what these movies once were and stood for has so thoroughly passed, we've maybe forgotten what was actually there. And I think I speak for both of us in saying that's kind of why we wanted to do this now. Um, Yeah, yeah. It was definitely watching Fellowship of the Ring. It was a thought I came to multiple times of like, Fuck, man, like, when, like, movie, like going and seeing movies in the theaters has never felt like it does with Lord of the Rings, or it did then. And partially, obviously, that's, I was a kid, but also just a sense of the scale of the fucking production, like, the sheer, utter ambition 
of the world building and obviously it's based on the book but it's based on a book not a visual property so the imagination of bringing the stuff in that book to life and everything with that like it felt so truly revolutionary and groundbreaking in a way that like you know i very much enjoy the marvel movies i you know am sort of on and off with the the new star wars movies and stuff like that um but like i generally enjoy my time watching these big blockbuster movies um nowadays but it doesn't do that it doesn't have that sort of sweep that sort of scale like it's just been such a long time since i feel like hollywood has put out a movie that actually felt epic in like a proper usage of that word not in just like the vague usage that is very common but like capital e epic um which is perfect for lord of the rings because it's you know obviously using a lot of templates developed from epic poetry because it's Jared Tolkien and he was a facet fucking nerd. Um, if anything's ever been an epic, The Lord of the Rings is an epic. Yeah, The Lord of the Rings is a like modern day epic. Um, the kind that like you don't... I'm not sure if there's anything else that has been produced in modern fiction that is like that. That is actually properly epic in that sense. Um, and you typically have, you know, like one great epic a century or so. It's been like that for a while. You know, with stuff like Paradise Lost or The Fairy Queen. I can't think of what one would be for the 19th century. But, um, you know, I'm sure there is something that I'm just glossing over. But you typically have, like, you know, something for, like, each sort of, like, a very big gap of, like, a generational kind of time. You have, like, a big epic. And it just feels like we haven't really done something like that in, like, most for most of our lifetime at this point. And it felt weird. Like, I didn't feel, I didn't think going into watching it, that that would be part of what made this movie feel old to me was that fuck like Hollywood's like big blockbuster movies don't do this kind of thing anymore. There are, I think two ways to view Lord of the Rings. Uh, now it is either the part of the first big blush of Hollywood brand obsessed tentpole filmmaking, or it is the last call for old style, big risky Hollywood epic gambles like Ben-Hur mm-hmm. or The Godfather or Lawrence of Arabia or something like that where you would make a big uh, like Lord of the Rings can be enjoyed by kids we were kids but it is I think you would say adult in the sense of like it is mature um, you know adult filmmaking that is three hours long and it is an event night to go out and see it and it is acclaimed by all corners and and it is something that can unite commercial and critical sides where there is now a really sharp divide in those things. Lord of the Rings was the last time I feel like they were really fully united, um, which they usually were in Hollywood up to this point. The whole idea of like best picture winners being movies no one's ever heard of, that's a 2000s thing. That is not a – like there are bad best picture winners in the 20th century – but they were much, like the Godfather won Best Picture because we all knew it was the best fucking movie. Return of the King was, I feel like, the last time that happened, mm-hmm. where like the movie that we just all knew was the defining movie of that year won that. And I'm not trying to be Oscar obsessed. I just think it's a, a signifier of what kind of movie this is. And I really do think like it's both of those things. It is both a signal of what's to come, but I think it's even more a sign of a past that is gone. Um, I felt kind of sad watching this because it did feel like this is a vision of movie making that is so much more expansive than we've gotten in my lifetime since. Um, and then I think we'll ever get again because I think that the project has just changed. Um, you know, the, the landscape has changed so much with TV. You know, I said this on Twitter the other night. Game of Thrones is a TV show, not a movie. It, I think there's another world where you could see it being a Lord of the Rings style thing and that didn't happen. 
uh, because no movie studio was going to do that. So, you know, um, I think that's all worth keeping in mind, and we'll get into that more throughout this discussion, and I'm sure the next two discussions. Also worth keeping in mind, as laughable as it sounds now, because we've seen it done, The Lord of the Rings was widely considered an unadaptable book in oh, yes. 2001. It was considered like, you can't make a movie out of that. Um, and I think when Peter Jackson did it, it felt like one of the most audacious things we'd ever seen, you know? Um, so let's talk about the moment it came out, Sean. We would both have been nine years old. It was 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell my story first. Um, I read... So my dad loved The Lord of the Rings. It was one of his favorite books. It was one of the things he introduced me to. I read The Hobbit first. I read The Hobbit when I was like seven. I would have read The Hobbit in... No, I would have read The Hobbit in second grade. I remember this. And then I started reading Lord of the... Because these movies were in production for so long. We knew they were coming. They were coming December 2001. And we had years to prepare. So I read The Hobbit... And then I started on Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, because I was in second and then third grade, took me like t- a year to read. Like it, it's this is the kind of book that at that age you go through over a long period of time. When Fellowship came out in theaters, I had read all of the first book and then a couple chapters of The Two Towers, which is good because Fellowship actually adapts the first chapter of Two Towers. We'll get into that. Um, but uh, I had not finished the whole series. And then by the time Two Towers came out, I'd finished the rest of the book. Uh, and the rest is history. Um, the Lord of the Rings is, I can easily say, my favorite book. I love it. I own five copies of it on my shelf. Um, three, I have three complete, vo- no, I have four volumes that are just like this. And then I have single volumes. And I actually have more in boxes because I have a collection. I'm trying to, you can see, Sean, the one I have right here, it's Gandalf is on it. There yes. were three collections that were all three books together that have images from the movie on it. I have two of these. There's one that is much rarer that I'm still trying to find, but I would love to collect all of them. Um, but I have these. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings is my favorite book. These were forever my favorite movies, still are in a lot of ways. We'll get into that. Um, and more importantly, when I sat down in that theater on December 17th, 2001, I don't need to look it up. I know the day it came out. Because I was looking forward to it for so long. It was a Wednesday night. These movies came out on Wednesdays. My dad, we had a debate for a while of whether or not we were going to go opening night because it was a school night, you know? And this movie started at 7 and it's a three-hour movie. I'd never seen a three-hour movie before, right? Um, (laughs) Has there been a three-hour movie released in major American theaters since the Lord of the Rings movies? No, there has not. Um, The closest is like... Uh, I think Dark Knight Rises and Transformers 4 are both 163 minutes or something. I'm sure the people who saw Transformers 4 were delighted by that statistic. They were not. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so it was it was kind of a new experience, but my, my dad really wanted to see it. I really wanted to see it. We went out opening night. Uh, back then, you know, there were no midnight screenings. That had yet to be a thing for new, newly released movies. There were no previews the previous night. A movie just opened the day it opened. Uh, There were no reserved seatings. You had to show up at the theater. You might have gotten your tickets early. You had to stand in line for an hour or more. We did. Um, Theaters were just absolutely jam-packed. You don't... There are so many more theaters and there are so many fewer movies made today that you don't get the feeling of sitting in a sold-out theater as much. But with Lord of the Rings, it was an event. You know, it was fully packed theater. I remember the row I sat in. I could probably, if I went back to that auditorium, it was the Denver West... Um, United Artists, it was Auditorium 9, 8 or 9, they're, they're identical auditoriums. 
I could tell you which row we were in if I looked at it because I know it was that that's a theater that has three rows, a big one in the middle, and then two columns on the side. We were on one of the left columns. We were in the upper half. We were behind a group of really rowdy teenagers who shut up when the movie started because the movie was that good. Um, I remember they showed the trailer for the live-action Scooby-Doo movie before Fellowship of the Ring, and it was the one where they were trying to trick you into thinking it was a Batman movie, but it was actually Scooby-Doo. I remember all of those details. I remember the film unfolding before my eyes, and I remember that's the day I fell in love with movies. Uh, This podcast would not exist. My career path would not exist. I would not have the degrees I have. I would not have written the things I'd written if it were not for The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. When I say it's my Star Wars, it's because this is how people talk about Star Wars in 1977. That, for me, was December 17th, 2001, Fellowship of the Ring. Um, I'll talk more about some of this later, but that's, that's my opening salvo. Yeah, for me... I don't think it's not quite as dramatic. And, and I feel kind of embarrassed being the lit guy on the podcast and can't be like the, uh, and then I read the books a million times. Um, because for me, like The Hobbit is like, if I if we did, this would be a podcast no one would ever listen to. But if we did our top 10 books podcast. We should probably at some point. We should probably at some point no, we would listen to that fucking podcast. Podcast 300, it's coming It'd up. Be, It'd be great because it would be the opposite of the top ten movies thing where it's like I'm going to have like all this fucking Paradise Lost and all this shit on mine. It, it, yeah, you get to have all the books that people actually read. Um, I want to do that. I want to be in that position. Okay, maybe we should, we should keep that in mind someday. Maybe we'll do our top ten books. And I will say that almost certainly The Hobbit would be one of my top ten books. Um, and because I have read – I've probably almost certainly read The Hobbit more than I've read any other book. Um, the last time I read The Hobbit was probably – I think two years ago. Um, and part of that is that obviously the Hobbit is a book as an adult that you can read in literally a day if you want to. Um, and so like that was the first book I can remember like really reading on my own is probably about the same age as you, Jonathan, probably about second grade that I read the Hobbit. Like I still have my copy of like my original copy of the Hobbit, um, which actually is not my copy. It was my mom's copy. So it's this really old book that's got like yellowed pages and everything. And it still has a bunch of Cheeto stains on some of the pages because I would read it. Here's like a window into my, like in, basically my entire childhood was me being ferried around from like soccer field to basketball stadium to football practice because my or baseball field. My brother played every fucking sport under the goddamn sun and he's four years older than me. Um, so, you know, he was old enough to be, he was playing all these sports, but I was still very young, too young to be at home. So most of them, and this was before you had cell phones and shit where it's like, you know, I was not staying at home alone until I was like nine or 10 or something. And so most of my, like being very young, it was just like spending so much time at different practices and games that my brother was at because that's just how it worked. And so I would bring the hobbit with me and i would read them like like it was like literally like the opening of fellowship where frodo is leaning up against the tree reading the book (laughs) like that's what it was because i was just out in the middle of a fucking field in like september in colorado just leaning up and trying to kind of be distant enough where i wasn't annoyed uh by all the noises from the practice but close enough that my parents could see me and i'd be under a tree like reading that book with a little bag of cheetos and so there are cheeto stains on the pages sean i would say we need this photoshop now of you in place of frodo but you have no pictures of yourself on the internet so what we probably need to do is do it with hatsune miku yes um, and have her leading up against a tree reading a manga or something 
and we and, have that. Yeah, and that's basically me with a little bag of Cheetos. That like at the time when I was a little kid was like this is a lot of Cheetos. Now it's like one of those fun size bags, and I, and I think back to this like, man, it would like there are part times sometimes I wish that I was a much smaller person because then so, so much stuff in the world would be so much bigger, and it was like think of how like more how much more substantial that fun size candy bar or that fun size bag of Cheetos was when you're like five years old. Because it's like, that's as big as my fucking arm, man. Oh, like, man. This thing t- is huge. Taking it back to movies for a second, Sean, Fellowship of the Ring always looks small to me on any screen I watch it on because I was nine when I saw it for the first time and the image of it on what is a big theater screen, not like the biggest in the world, but a big one. But to me at nine, a really big screen is etched in my brain. Yeah, I have that more for episode one, Phantom Menace, of like, in like every time I've seen that movie, it is always like, I think back to, I remember this movie being gigantic. Like, yeah. what movie theater is like, it was just the normal, it's the same movie theater. I mean, it would have been the Denver West one, not the Colorado yeah. Mills one. But, Mills wasn't you know. open yet. Yeah. But Mills so, premiered but for Two Towers. I'll tell you that story next time. That was the first time I went to that theater. Yeah. But yeah, it's like thinking back to being a kid and like every movie theater going experience was one you had to move your head to see the full image because, because that's how it worked when you're tiny. Um, but yeah, so I read The Hobbit voraciously. I still love that fucking book to death. Um, and, and by the time the movies came out, I had not read Lord of the Rings. I did not get to reading Lord of the Rings till like sixth grade or seventh grade. Um, and so by that time, that was when like, I think with the, how many of the movies would have been out by then? Was the, would Return of, of the King been done? Yeah. So, well, we're, so 2001, 2, 3. Um, yeah, so yeah. I think it would have been right around 2004, maybe, is when I would have started reading Fellowship for the first time. But I knew, but I had already knew the whole story because we had listened to the um, BBC, like, radio drama versions or, like, that are audio on tape stuff. Um, so we still have those. Like, we have The Hobbit that's on tape. And I think the Lord of the Rings one is actually on CDs. And it was super fancy. It's like, oh, my God, this thing is on fucking CDs. They, like, think of, like, all the, like... The Hobbit one is way shorter, and it's on more tapes than the fucking Lord of the Rings one is on CDs. Um, but yeah, so we had been... So I had listened to the whole story um, in audio tape version. I had seen um, the Ralph Bashke version, uh, the animated, that's obviously only takes you to uh, sort of like some... I forget how much that movie covers, because it just gets kind of delirious near the end with all the stuff they cut out. It's it, not a particularly... I know it ends with Helm's Deep. Yeah, so yeah, so it definitely goes through two towers, but I feel like most of the two tower stuff is so abbreviated in that movie that it just feels like I don't. We're at Helm's Deep. Okay, it's been a long time since I saw that version of the movie. Um, but I had also seen the animated Hobbit, um, and they did the the same people that did the Hobbit did the Return of the King one. So I had seen. I think I had seen that before I saw these movies. Also, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, which with, where there's a whip, there's a way. That's one of the songs from that fucking animated movie. That's just that's the only song I think I can name, but that is one of the songs in that movie. Um, so so it's like while I had not read those books, I was like fully steeped in Lord of the Ringsness, partially because my you know again going back to my brother, um, my brother is not a I would not describe him as a particularly nerdy person, but he did have a friend that was super nerdy, and with that friend he would play. Um, Dungeons and Dragons because my brother's a highly sociable person and so he got really into Dungeons and Dragons I feel like like because I think feel like he probably kind of got dragged into it then got really into it and I feel like I, I suspect that was mostly his vector into getting into Lord of the Rings stuff so this has been something that I've always shared with my brother because also my parents both love Lord of the Rings that like it's always been kind of a big family thing with us 
Um, so, you know, because we listened to those tapes on road trips and with the, the family all together. So my brother was obsessed with it. I think to this day, the only books that my brother has actually read are The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and the Harry Potter books. I Maybe he read something for school at some point. I suspect not. Um, so those are probably the only books he's ever read. But so, but that was kind of like what Lord of the Rings was to me was like this whole family thing that we all knew about. Um, and this like one really fucking kick-ass book, The Hobbit, that was so much better than Harry Potter that I would rather just read The Hobbit eight, seven fucking times than read another goddamn Harry Potter book, um, which was basically my attitude as a kid. Um, and it's still my attitude today. I don't know why I said as a kid. It's just my attitude. Um, so yeah, so that was sort of what it was like going into Lord of the Rings, the movies, was that anticipation of knowing that they're making these movies, knowing it's going to be the coolest thing ever, listening to those radio dramas, reading The Hobbit again, like that, that was what it was like for me. And for whatever reason, I never really got around to reading the books until later. And then I've never read the books, the Lord of the Rings books as much as I've wanted to, probably mostly because being an English major meant I had to read so much other stuff that making the time to read... It's basically like all told, like a 900 to 1,000 page novel. That's pretty fucking hard to make the time for and to justify for me rereading that as opposed to reading something like The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer properly through from beginning to end or something. Like, it's hard for me to fully justify doing a, a Lord of the Rings reread, but I think I'm probably going to do it now after watching these movies again. I try, I do not succeed in this. I try to read it every summer. Um, which I got the idea for because many, many members of the Lord of the Rings cast and crew, it, that is a ritual for them. Philippa Boyens, the co-screenwriter. Uh, Christopher Lee is said to have done that every mm-hmm. year. Um, uh, Ian McKellen, I don't know if he was one of the annual ones, but he's, you know, he's a scholar of Tolkien, basically. If you listen to him talk about it, him and Christopher Lee both. But yeah, um, you know, I should also say, as you probably heard from my spiel, um, this was something my dad and I shared a lot, you know, the, uh, you can trace the growth of the Lord of the Rings movie audience by my family's involvement in it, because the first movie, it was just my dad and I went to go see it. My brother, my little brother never saw it in theaters. He still is kind of sore about that. He, he wound up seeing the extended cut in theaters when they put it out later. Um, but theatrically, he never saw it. Uh, he, he saw it for the first time on a TV in Kearney, Nebraska, on one of our road trips where you would rent a movie over the, the hotel TV. You remember that? Um, oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, that's how we... I, I, I can tell you every time I've seen these movies. Um, so the first time was just my dad and me. Two Towers comes out with my dad, my little brother, and me because he was old enough to go to the theater with us now. Third movie, it was my dad, my brother... Me and my mom. So we all went to see Return of the King opening night. And you could tell the audience was just growing each time. Um, Return of the King at the time was only the second billion dollar movie. Now we have that, you know, like seven times a year. But it was special back then. Um, anyway, yeah. So so these were movies I shared very deeply with my uh, father. Um, if you listen to this podcast long enough, you know my dad died uh, in the first year of this podcast, actually. It was back in 2012. We're coming up on... It's been six years, so it'll be seven in October. Um, I, I haven't watched these since he died, I don't think. Um, I know there was a marathon that I went to around the time. It was not when The Hobbit came out. It was before The Hobbit. I don't remember if it was before or after he died. He died very near the release of the first Hobbit movie. Uh, never got to see it. Um, 
but I know there was a marathon with the all three extended cuts in theaters, and that is the last time I've seen these. I literally sat in a theater for 12 hours and watched all three in a row, and it was good the best. Lord. It was so good. Um, if you've never done a marathon of Lord of the Rings, one day it is worth trying it. It's really fun. But anyway, uh, I have not gone back to them. It's just been very hard. I've gone back to the book in that time. Haven't done the movies. Um, you know, it's it's... I said this last night on Twitter. I, I look at The Fellowship of the Ring and sometimes... I don't have this as much with the other two movies. But with Fellowship in particular, I look at the movie and it's hard to see the movie. I see all the stuff around the movie. I see my childhood. I see all these memories of seeing the movie. I see... You know, I have my extended cut DVD set here. I remember you know, buying this and getting it for the first time and watching all the special features and getting interested in the art of filmmaking because I think for a lot of people of our generation, they would say these box sets made them interested mm-hmm. in filmmaking as a craft, as an art. Like The reason I love all the crafts Oscars is I got to know the crafts people watching these. And then there's all the memories with my dad. So it, it's all very tied together here because of that. Um, so... You know, uh, if I get misty-eyed at any point in this conversation, it's because I I deeply love this movie, and I deeply love everything this movie is a is about in my life. Um, so let's talk about watching it again, Sean. Um, yeah. So here's so my plan. I got really heady about it because I was like, I'm going to watch for these podcasts the theatrical cuts. That was my idea. I said I was going to watch the theatrical cuts because that's what I saw in theaters. And our whole exercise has been to revisit the movies we saw as kids and blah, blah, blah. I got about an hour into the theatrical cut. and I was like, nope, I can't do this. It feels like the movie's on fast forward. I switched to the extended cut. Um, I have never been as sure in my life that I do believe the extended cuts are better. We will get into that later. Um, you watch the extended cut, right? Yes, because I we had we 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 have owned all of the versions of these movies at different points. Because again, my brother like bought the like this was one of the first DVDs we ever got was the mm-hmm. theatrical cut of, of Fellowship of the Ring. But I do not know where those theatrical DVDs are at this point. My brother probably took them at some point in there somewhere in the world. I don't know, um, but I have my. Extended edition DVDs right here. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Yep. Um, so yeah, so that's... I've other... I'm trying to think. I don't think I ever saw The Two Towers more than once in the theater. I definitely saw Fellowship more than once in the theater and Return of the King at least twice. Um, but other than other than when they were in the theaters and that first time seeing the DVDs when we got the theatrical DVDs, so past that, which is all like right when those movies came out, I have not seen the theatrical versions. The versions I have always gone back to has been the extended um, and so I have seen the extended and the extended versions of these movies more, many more times than the theatrical versions. And it's very difficult for me at this point in time to remember what was not in the theatrical, like what, what the changes yeah. are. There was a point in my time where I could probably list all of them off the top of my head. That time has passed because it has been like, I mean, for me, I think of the last time I saw these movies was probably around the same time as it was for you. I think it was around... I'm not sure if I saw these movies after the Hobbit movies came out. I, it would either have been right around after the first Hobbit movie came out or a little bit before that came out. But I don't remember quite, but it's like right around there. So it's been about seven years since yeah. I've seen them. 
Um, I can still catalog the changes in my head um, because I'm weird obsessive about it. Um, and I have seen the theatrical versions since. They, they came out on Blu-ray first. Um, then they waited a couple years to do the extended cuts on Blu-ray. And I saw them then. And I still own them. Like, I have my... I've also like played with my box sets. So like I have the extended DVD here. The box, but I put the Blu-rays inside of it because the packaging is just so cool for these. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, I didn't want to give it up. Um, but anyway... Uh, yeah, so, so for anyone who's forgotten, by the way, when we talk about theatrical versus extended, here's how it worked. The movies came out in theaters in December, so December 2001 for Fellowship, and then in August of the following year, they would put out the movie on DVD in its original theatrical cut. And if you're thinking, wow, that's a long time, that was standard back then, actually. Now it's, like, yeah. really short, but they would wait, you know, seven or eight months. Because um, also movies played, like, these movies played in theaters for months and months and months. Uh, movies don't do that anymore. It's a couple of weeks, you know. Um, and then they're gone. Uh, so anyway, you'd get that in August, and then in November, they would do these extended cuts, which... What they would do is while they were working on the next movie, they also simultaneously made these extended versions. And they would be uh, – Fellowship is a half hour longer. Two Towers is 45 minutes. Return of the King is a full hour. And they had all new visual effects. Howard Shore came back and wrote new music to make it seamless. So, like, I think these are probably, like, the most revered director's cuts, quote-unquote, of all time. Like, people really do view them as the definitive editions. Uh, Peter Jackson is actually more on the fence about it, which ones he likes more. But um, these are definitely the definitive versions for most fans. And I think there's there's good reason why, and we'll get into that. Later on uh, But for now Let's just talk about the movie I mean Sean We could take this In so many directions But watching it again Last night What was your reaction To The Fellowship of the Ring Yeah I mean So there's There was a lot Because um, again It had just been I think oh, No absolutely 100% the, This has been The longest gap Between me ever Seeing these movies mm-hmm, Like me too. this seven year Like by a lot like I typically watch these movies about once a year, maybe a little bit longer than that. Like the, obviously the gaps started to get a little bit longer as time went on. Um, but yeah, I like watched these movies kind of like the same thing I did with Star Wars. I would watch them pretty frequently. It was like kind of about once a year, usually around winter time because that's always how I've kind of associated them because that's when they came out. Um, in the theaters, like it's always just been kind of like fall, winter, probably time for me to watch Lord of the Rings again, huh? Um, and typically how I would do it would be I would watch part one of the movie take a little break watch the second part because on the dvds they're split into two because they're dvds not blu-rays the blu-rays um, are split then, into two also are, are they yeah yeah i did not know that they're yeah. long it, movies <laughs> yeah and that honestly that makes sense because i'm not entirely sure what it would be like to because i feel like they split the parts basically where you put an intermission yes. in a three-hour long movie so it's like it feels like it's designed to be like oh i'm gonna watch this i'm gonna like do something else for an hour or two and then come back and watch the the other half and then i'd like watch the fellowship then the next day I do Two Towers, and the next day I do Return of the King. It's just been a very long time since I did that. So I felt like I was able to approach the movie in a pretty fresh way this time, in a way I've never been able to do with this. So it felt a little bit more like how I felt watching the prequels again, um, compared to going back and watching the original Star Wars movies. This felt like this, like, oh, right, like, yeah, these movies are really fucking good. And there was no, like, reassessment in the way there was with the prequels and having to sort of, like, reevaluate the movies because um, I always knew they were really good. But it did... I was able to kind of reappreciate so much of what these movies do because I feel like I've just sort of changed so much as a person since, like, you know, I have a degree in college. I have a college degree and I'm, you know, 
I've, I've learned a whole other fucking language. <laughs> I'm like a student teacher now. I've taken like enough um, college credits that I basically have a teacher license. Of All I have to do is finish the student teacher stuff. So it's like a lot has happened in my life and a lot has changed since the last time I saw these movies. And particularly my, you know, sort of critical faculties and stuff like that have evolved so much. You've and done so eight years I, of a podcast. Yes, eight years of a podcast. Like just so much has changed for me. And so... I think I was just really able to reappreciate the like the depth of these movies, but also what's like shocked me kind of the most for movies as long as this and and movies that have to be split as like three parts of what is really just one long story. They're not Two Towers is not a sequel to Fellowship of the Ring. It's just the next part of the story. They were never designed to be split up. They just have to be split up because they're so fucking long. Um, that's true of the books. That's true of the movies. Uh, and so. You know, it, like the task set out in adapting these books and splitting it into three parts um, and, and making them into films is so gargantuan that the fact that the character arcs and the like structure of the movie is so focused and so precise, I found like kind of startling, honestly, that at the end of the movie, and I just noticed so many places where they are developing Frodo's character arc in ways that I was never able to notice or articulate before. And just like little scenes and little moments um, where you see him changing and you see the shape of his arc and the shape of the movie. And that's the kind of stuff that watching it this time, you know, I was able to appreciate all the humor and all the life and all and the score and the cinematography and all that stuff that I've always loved. I was able to appreciate as much as I always have. But it's those larger structural things that for me really stood out this time and just how sharp this movie really is. Absolutely. Um, so for me, there is no doubt in my mind that this is the movie I have seen more times than any other film in my life. I, I don't even know what number two would be. Um, the Two Towers. <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. like go down the list. I've seen Fellowship more because it's the first one. And I had that, you know, I saw Fellowship in theaters five times, I think. Like... I, I have seen it, you know, I watched that theatrical cut DVD over and over. We got the extended DVD. I have, I'm surprised they still play. I've, I've seen these movies so many times. It, it, you know, it kind of threw a wrench in it for me when my, when my father passed away. I can basically quote Fellowship of the Ring. Like, especially the first, mm -hmm. like, hour or so of it. And because of that, when I go back, like, I remember I actually did a couple years ago try to watch Fellowship, and I, I couldn't get through it, not because I didn't like the movie anymore, but there's so much stuff around it. There's my personal story with it that I've told you about, but also, like, there are all the shitty video games, and the Hobbit movies were so soul-crushingly awful and disappointing, and there's this stupid Amazon show that's going to come out, and, like, it's sometimes hard to see past that and just watch the movie. But Fellowship is good enough that I made the time to sit down and watch it last night. And by the end, you know, I think Fellowship has, for me, easily my favorite third act in any movie ever. Mm -hmm. Everything on, on, uh, on Amon Hen um, and Parth Galen at the end of the film is, is transcendent. It is transcendent filmmaking. You know, Boromir dies and, you know, my captain, my king... I'm tearing up at it, watching it again, and I'm fully yeah. in it, and I felt it. And and there is a magic to this movie that is untouched by, I think, anything that has come since. It is untouched in ambition and in scope, but also just in skillfulness of telling a story. I have always maintained the position that I do not think there is a better or more teachable example of literary adaptation on film than The Lord of the Rings. Because yeah. there are very, very, very few tasks harder 
even with Shakespeare, you can just take the text and do it. You have to be creative, but you don't have to like completely rework it. They took this thousand-page book. For this first film in particular, The Fellowship of the Ring is one-third of a really long novel. And yet, this is how good an adaptation it is, Sean. It is about as clear and teachable an example of three-act structure as you will find in any movie ever. Yep. To the degree where the theoretical idea of the midpoint, the point where the character's arc shifts significantly in the second act, is the end of disc one of a two-disc movie. Like, yep. that is how perfectly structured it is. In the original theatrical cut, I checked this last night, Frodo says he's taking the ring to Mordor at 90 minutes on the fucking dot. Like, he's like, I'm taking that ring to Mordor midpoint, 90 minutes on the dot. That is an amazing feat of adaptation. And yes, it is so... Like, that's something worth saying. These movies are three to four hours long. They don't feel long. They fly by to me. They are so Mm -hmm. eminently watchable, more so than any three-hour movie I've ever seen. Um, And it's because they are packed with incident. They are packed with character motivation. They are packed with character development. I was watching some of the bonus features again, and and one of the things Philippa Boyens, one of the co-writers, said is that when they were writing the script, they tried to have every action communicate multiple things. That, like, she gave the example of at the beginning of the film, Mary and Pippin stealing the fireworks. That is introducing Mary and Pippin. That is giving us a comic moment in a film that's going to get very dark, and she thought it was good to have comedy up at the front. It gives us the fireworks scene that is from the book with the dragon, and it introduces us more to Gandalf's character and his relationship with the hobbits. And I think that's true of pretty much every scene in Fellowship of the Ring. There's nothing in here that is not pulling double duty. Um, And if you watch the theatrical cut, it is very tight. It is almost too quickly paced, I think, in how it is like incident to incident to incident. One of the things I love about the extended cut is it breathes more and gives itself time to to luxuriate in its setting a little more. Not that I think it ever gets slow, um, but it lets the characters just breathe more, which I think is good for a film of this of this length and of this depth. Um, it is an incredibly skillful feat of screenwriting. And then every other element, you know, these have, I think, the best scores in American film history for music. I think they have exemplary cinematography. Andrew Lesney, uh, the, the DP, passed away a couple years ago. He died right after the last Hobbit movie came out. He was a genius. Uh, he won the cinematography Oscar for the first and third films. Uh, no, you know, the production design, I just started writing down last night, Sean, things that are inspired by Lord of the Rings production design, and it just, you can't do them all. Like, anything that is vaguely high fantasy, they cracked the code of how to do it on film. And everyone mm-hmm. else is in their wake. So... Yeah, I'm blathering on and on about it, but it, it's so good. It is such a... Uh, it is the best movie I think we will talk about at length on this podcast. <laughs> like, like I would... You know, we've talked about some great films at length. We've done an episode on Spider-Man 2, on Empire Strikes Back. We did our top ten movies things, all that. This is just as good as... About as good as it gets to me. Yeah, no, it's it's a truly truly remarkable movie in basically every single respect. and And it's something that we'll obviously... Like it'll be a conversation we'll obviously have to reassess when we get to Return of the King. But my position is, um, historically has been, is in like watching this again. I think it's going to be something very hard to change. Fellowship is the best of these three movies to me, um, and it's some of this just like I just it's it's almost a magic trick. Going back to what you said of this having like one of if not the best third acts of any movie. It that's like that's a fucking miracle. Like, yes. I don't. I I still watching it again. I still don't understand how that's possible 
because it's like, you know, it's a little bit of like, you know, Empire Strikes Back kind of is able to pull this off pretty well of being like, okay, this, you know, we have all these threads still hanging that another movie is going to have to resolve. Um, and there have been other movies that have been able to kind of do that thing. There's something about Fellowship of the Ring that it's able to land that spot so fucking perfectly, you know, it's like to continue, like, you know, like some Olympic metaphor, all the judges just come up tens. Because it's like if, you know, obviously it would have been some horrible tragedy if they had never made the other movies. It would have been, wouldn't have even made sense because they were making all of them at the same time. But, you know, you in Fellowship of the Ring and it's such a, like, culminating experience and, like, the note it ends on is so powerful. And so, and, like, the character arcs have so fully reached this, this point of culmination at the end. Um, obviously that there's material for them to shift for the next movies. But this just feels the most rounded and the most completed. And I think it's particularly because um, Frodo's arc in this movie is so clearly like in the middle of those crosshairs. And while they have all the other characters in so many of all like the other major characters have really great arcs as well. Like Aragorn and Gandalf and Sam. Um, Frodo's development is so sharp and clear and strong and striking that those final moments of him and Sam standing over and looking at Mount Doom. And Frodo saying, I'm glad you're with me, Sam. Um, like that's such a fucking amazing ending. It's such a perfect ending for the movie that it's just like great. Yep, you, I guess I guess there's more, and like I'm really happy to see the, to see the next one. But it's like one of the reasons why I've never probably felt compelled to watch Two Towers immediately after Fellowship of the Ring. That is that ending feels so definitive that it's like I need a day break. Like yeah. I can't watch the next movie immediately. I need to walk away from this a little bit and come back to it after having recuperated. It's it's exemplary. I, and it's that's the book. Like that's the thing is that I, I do. I agree. I think Fellowship is the best of the three movies. I think they're all. Ex- and look, these are three of the best movies ever made. They're all A plus. They're all ten out of ten. When we're saying this, we're not putting any of them down. Yeah. But like, I think some of it is just if you look at the structure of the book, the story they got to adapt in Fellowship is the one that has the spine of Frodo is with you from the very beginning to the very end, and it is Frodo's story. Two Towers and Return of the King in book and movie form are bigger. They are ensemble yeah. pieces. Frodo is still the center of the of the movie's world, but he is not the thing we are following the entire time. Um, and I think that just gives it that emotional heft. I don't think Two Towers or Return of the King are any less well made. Like I actually think um, those two movies are much, much, much more impressive on the level of these were harder movies to make, you know? Like, Fellowship sure, yeah. gives you a beginning. It's, I, I know Boromir technically dies at the beginning of The Two Towers, the book, but, like, it's such an easy thing to just slot right over um, that there, that arc is clear. Two Towers was nearly impossible to adapt. Return of the King, like, nailing... We'll talk about the controversy over the ending, but getting the ending to the Return of the King right is a whole other magnitude of that. But there is something about the simplicity of what the Fellowship of the Ring, the book, offers you and how well they did that, that it is kind of hard to beat. And it's also just the freshness of it, that, like, this movie is just beat for beat, note for note, so full of imagination and ingenuity. And when you get to the, this what I always think of as disc two, and the Fellowship sets out, they are cooking with so much gasoline, it's amazing they didn't mm-hmm. light themselves on fire. Everything in Moria, everything in Lothlorien, everything in Parth Galen at the end. It's like, I, it, it's one of the best sustained stretches of film in movie history. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about it. You know, maybe we'll just do the disc one, disc two split here, Sean. 
But, sure. You know, yeah. That's because because it it's gets... easy. For, yeah. It's I'm with you. Like that's how I think of the movies because I've seen the extended edition so many times that yeah. It's for me. It's like you get to Pippin going. So where are we going? And it's like okay, that's time for me to go eat lunch or something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, when when I saw these in theaters when they did that marathon, they cut out the intermission, and I'm like, why would you do that? Because the cut is actually very awkward in these movies if you see them like spliced together, like digital copies of them do that. And the cut is weird in the middle of the movies because they. Well, don't... yeah, because it would be like, so where are we going? Oh, we're going to visit Aragorn's mom's grave, I guess, because yes. that's that's where you cut to after this. He's like the yeah the filmic language. If you don't have a break there, like kind of doesn't make as much sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, let's talk about this because the structure is, as we said, very clear. You know, disc one, you have everything in the Shire. I mean, you have the prologue, then you get the Shire. You get Frodo, um, you know, learning. Uh, so Bilbo leaves and Frodo gets the ring and Gandalf does his detective work. And then Frodo has to go to Rivendell. They, they get all the way to Rivendell. They meet Aragorn on the way. Frodo has his adventure with the ring wraiths. And finally, Frodo decides he has to take the ring to Mordor. I like adventure with the ring wraiths is a very pleasant way to describe getting <laughs> fucking stabbed by a ghost man. Yes, it's a very, very traumatic moment for poor Frodo Baggins. Um, as much as I say disc two is them cooking with gasoline... That's because disc one is so good. It is like, mm-hmm. a, as a piece of world building. I mean, again, this is a world that Tolkien spends so much... Go- I mean, this book took him 15 years to write. It's got 100 pages of an encyclopedia at the back of it. It's got a fucking timeline for itself. He wrote another book that is just the history of the world. Like, And yet, so much of it comes across in this movie, and it feels effortless. That's the biggest thing. Like... I don't want to pull the Hobbit movies into this discussion too much because they're bad and they make me sad. But compare the prologue and then the first scenes in Hobbiton in Fellowship of the Ring to whatever the fuck is the opening of An Unexpected Journey where they try to do the same thing. And An Unexpected Journey is it is flop sweaty and it is awkwardly paced and it has no idea what it's going for. Fellowship just feels effortless. It is like a master storyteller is guiding you along. And I think it's amazing. Absolutely, yeah. And, and yeah, so let's talk about... Let's let's start with the prologue. Let's start where they start. Um, so you get, you know, um, all the stuff in the Second Age and the war uh, to sort of, you know, take the ring from Sauron. And you just get that just amazing fucking opening speech from Galadriel about all the rings and, you know, three rings for the Elven Kings and so on and so forth. And just that whole staging, particularly with the music, which you know, I agree with you that, like, this is, if not the best, one of the best scores in, in all of Western filmmaking. Um, it's it's just, like, it's the perfect kind of, like, fairy tale opening, and it captures that sense of, like, history to this world. And it's the right way to open it with this, like, okay, let's sit down and get, like, the historical context lecture out of the way like let's 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 give you the tools to kind of understand how old this world is what's been going on here like set the stakes for everything because you because after you have that prologue you spend a lot of time in the shire kind of dealing with other stuff you get the little hints of the ring occasionally but it's a lot of after that point we're setting up the characters and so this choice of opening the movie with this really spectacular kind of like here's what happened like a thousand years ago or however long it's been there's again to give that sense of like the epic this is like you know the trojan war or something this is you know the the stage that has been set and the whole history of this world kind of on display for you and then things settle and there's but there's always that kind of creeping hidden darkness and villainy behind everything it's just such an elegant 
opening and it moves through such a tremendous amount of materials so quickly but so smartly. I mean, it shouldn't work. It just shouldn't work. <laughs> it is opening this big movie with eight minutes of exposition. Like, there is no screenwriting guide on Earth that will tell you to do that, right? And and But what they do, because it works, and we'll talk about why it works, think about how much rope they buy themselves for the rest of the trilogy because they pulled off that prologue. If that prologue doesn't work or if you don't have it, the Council of Elrond is a 45-minute scene. <laughs> Uh-huh. If you don't pull that off, Gandalf has to talk to Frodo for much longer in Bag End. If you don't pull that off, there is way more you have to learn about Gollum in film too. Like, that exposition buys them so much rope because, you know, Tolkien's exposition I love because he does it in this... I mean, The Lord of the Rings has more in common with an epic poem than it does a novel in a lot of ways, certainly yeah. in terms of structure and pace. Um, and so you can get away with diversions where they just are going to talk about the history for a chapter because that's kind of part of the tradition he comes from. You can't do that in a movie. It works in the prologue for a couple of reasons. One, Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett yes. can make that fucking work. You know, it could have been her, it could have been Ian McKellen. They made the right choice with Kate Blanchett. I love you, Ian, but, but Galadriel doing that and her being disconnected enough from the narrative buys them a lot there, I think, too. Yeah, because honestly, it had been multiple watches of this movie before I realized that that voice was Galadriel. Because <laughs> it just is the perfect kind of narrator voice, and it's, and you only encounter her really in the middle section of this movie. Like, she's not this, like, constant presence the way that Gandalf is. That, yeah, she's distant enough that she can just kind of serve that narrator, narrator purpose. Exactly. You have that, you have some incredibly striking visuals. The the opening visuals of this, like, I will never forget the shot where um, it's the big battle um, uh, where Isildur, you know, takes the sword and all that. Um, but what's happening is you have the army of Mordor coming at the army of elves and men, the last alliance, and they're coming at them in kind of like a parallax shape, and all of them do this thing with these, like, spears where they, they flip them up and they do it in a line coming down. Oh. I remember the day the movie came out, there was a frame grab of that image in the Denver Post for the film's review, and I was like, I can't wait to see that image in the movie, and when it came up in the first, like, three minutes, I'm like, that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So that... John, I love I love whenever we talk about a movie on this podcast, and either I start talking about a scene, or you start talking about a scene in a very vague way at first, <laughs> and after, like, the first two words, I'm like... Is this this is this the scene that I'm thinking of? And then you start talking. It's like it's the fucking scene I'm thinking of because yeah, that's the exact shot. And here's like you know because this is man, these are going to be some of the nerdiest podcasts we're probably going to do. Yes, <laughs> like with all this Lord of the Rings stuff. So one, you know, I think both of us own multiple different kinds of like supplementary Lord of the Rings related books. Um, one of the books I own that I just love is this weapons and armor book that they made oh, nice. um, about the movies. Um, and it's all written, like, diegetically. So it's all written, like, as if it's someone talking about, like, actually digging up, like, relics from, um, the, like, this era and, like, talking about all, like, these, like, the armor that the elves used and the swords. It's like, I know so much bullshit about, like, fullers and swords and what you, like, what a fuller is and why you use it. Like, all this weird term terminology and stuff entirely from reading this book and it has like really high res glossy pictures of the props used in the movies and everything um and yeah those are some of the coolest weapons they made for the, these movies are the weapons that the second age elves use which are these cool like 
like they have the like like half of it because they're basically big curved swords, but half of them are big handles that are curved, and the other half are big um, blades. And so they have these like big twirling motions. So yeah, they make this big like uppercut move, and it just follows down that line, just like shuck 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 shuck, like right up to the front of the camera. Fucking perfect, beautiful, gorgeous, amazing shot. Love it. I it's so good. And so you have striking imagery like that. You have. I mean, Sauron and Mount Doom are all there. Like, that's one of the things is that because they had years of pre-production and they made all the movies together, the images you're seeing in the prologue are where you're going to get back to in Return of the King. And, like, that Mm. promise was also something really powerful about the prologue. And then I think the third ingredient is the music. Howard Shore is a genius, and, and I think many people have written about how this is one of the best scores ever written. It is fully, like, it is often compared to the works of Wagner. It is Wagnerian. It is symphonic. Um, and in the first seven minutes, he introduces so many musical motifs that are going to carry us through 12 hours of cinema. Um, and I think you put those ingredients together. It's not a lecture. It's an adventure that happens to be expository, you know? And, and you feel like you've seen a great little short film before the title comes up. Yeah, and it just has this sort of fairy tale quality. It has this very, like, once upon a time element to it of, of you know, let's go back into this ancient era. And then I also just adore then, like, the sort of accelerated here. We're, like, kind of revisiting the ring. And it's the journey of the ring going from the hand of Sauron and how it ultimately ends up with Bilbo. And so, you know... You get that, the you know, Isildur gets killed, and he's in the river, and the, the ring gets away from him. Um, and then... History became myth, little... became legend, and things yes. that should not have been forgotten were lost. lost. Yes, and then you get this little vignette of, like, a bit of The Hobbit with Riddles in the Dark, and, and you get Bilbo there getting the ring, and, and Gollum there. It's like, lost! My precious is lost! And, and yeah, all that, just like... Again, it's it's very compacted and very concise, and it was the kind of thing that like I was wondering a couple of times um, while watching this. Like, I wonder what the experience would be like watching this movie now as someone utterly ignorant of the Lord of the Rings. Um, but I like it would would any of this stuff be confusing to you if you had no idea what a fucking Hobbit was or who Bilbo Baggins is? But I think they like just present it in such a smooth, economical fashion that even if you know all this stuff, it doesn't. Fe- it's not like you know, hammering it into your head that's like, okay, yes, it's Bilbo, I know, like, let's get to the real story. Um, but if you don't know anything of it, I think it gives you just enough information that it gives the context you need for everything that the movie's going to be talking about, and it gets you in line with where you need to be for future exposition to understand the story. Uh, it, it plays so well. I mean, I, I, again, the story of opening night in 2001, I remember... You know, we were sitting behind this group of rowdy teenagers and my dad and I were both worried because these guys were like, they were like yelling at the screen during the trailers about like, oh, it's Batman. No, it's Scooby-Doo. Oh, my God. You know, that kind of thing. They shut the fuck up the moment she starts talking, like whispering to you. It just is such a confident and and beautiful opening. It Everyone in the theater bought into it right away. That's a magic trick. Yeah. Okay, lest we spend this whole podcast on the prologue. Um, all the bag end stuff, this is where I want to talk a little bit about the extended cut. Because um, while the Fellowship of the Ring extended version has the least added footage, it has the most changed content of the three movies. Because the opening, I don't know if you remember this, Sean, is completely reworked in the extended cut. 
In yeah, so the concerning Hobbit's stuff yeah. is not in the theatrical, right? More than that, yeah. But I'll, I'll give you a little rundown here. So in the theatrical cut, you start after the prologue, you cut straight to Frodo in the field, and the title comes up over him reading. And it also says the Shire dot 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 60 years later. That's all cut out of the extended cut. Um, and you start with Frodo. He hears Gandalf coming. He runs over to Gandalf. And then you follow him. He and Gandalf get together. Gandalf gives the speech about concerning hobbits that Bilbo has. Um, Bilbo does not narrate this. And they go through Hobbiton. There's some extra shots in the theatrical cut that are not in the extended cut, actually, of Hobbiton. Um, and they're going to Hobbiton. They get to um, Bag End. And then we meet Bilbo for the first time. And, Interesting. And there's definitely a logic to that. Like, I was watching it, and I'm like, there's a... I can see why they did this for theaters, because what it does is it focuses you on Frodo, and there's a geography of you start with Frodo in the outskirts, he and Gandalf travel into town, into Bag End, and that's when we meet Bilbo, and we come into the story that way. And I can see why that was one choice. But I think the extended cut is better... Because what the extended cut does is it starts you with Bilbo writing concerning hobbits. He has this knock on the door. He's calling for Frodo. We cut to Frodo, who is out reading, has his head in the clouds. And then we get kind of the same scene, although now Bilbo does some narration for us. And then we get back to Bag End. I think the extended cut is more effective because in the theatrical version, you don't quite have a character to hang your hat on the same way you do in the extended cut. Because in the theatrical cut, you're supposed to connect to Frodo right away, but Frodo does not really become important in the story until Bilbo leaves. This is true of the book as well. And so in the movie, you get a first half hour, because they also add some scenes with Bilbo, like the scene at the party where he confesses to Frodo he's worried he wasn't always a good person, he thinks he might have been selfish. And so Bilbo becomes this anchor point for you. And when he leaves, it passes to Frodo. And it's a more complex structure, but I think it works better emotionally. And the thing is, that's exactly what the book does. Um, they talk about this a lot in the, in, the, in the bonus features on these things, that oftentimes they would face a, a path of, like, we're going to make a big change from Tolkien. They would try it, and they would ultimately come back to Tolkien because his instincts were pretty good. And I think that's true here as well. Um, it, I think that it just gives you more emotional content to hang your hat on to. Yeah, I think there's also something that for any work of high fantasy, any work of fantasy that is asking you to buy into a totally separate reality. So instead of something like Harry Potter, which is fantastical, but it nominally takes place in the world that we live in, just there happens to also be magic. Lord of the Rings is more like a Star Wars or something where it's like, no, this is a totally separate universe. You have no anchor points. This isn't Star like Star Trek is another example where it's like Star Trek takes place in our world just in the future. Like Star Wars is fantasy world. Lord of the Rings is fantasy world. You have no real anchor points other than like it's vaguely medieval Europe-esque in some ways. Like you can kind of use some of that to guide you a little bit. But even then, not that it, it, that's not going that knowledge is not going to take you very far. Um, so with any work of high fantasy like that that's asking you to buy into a totally separate constructed world, I think the number one thing you have to do is be able to convince the audience that that world is real, whatever your medium is in. Um, and so like these movies had like oh you know had a lot uh, to have material to work through because J.R.R. Tolkien with Lord of the Rings constructed by a country mile the most detailed developed fa- high fantasy world ever created that's not like mythology or something that's not like actual existing greek mythology which even that's like not even a totally separate world so i don't even that his kind of his count. stated goal was to make a modern english mythology 
because there was none for modern people. And so he created full timelines, full histories. He created one wholly workable language in fragments of other languages that had their own alphabets, followed their own internal rules, you know, had their own rules for pronunciation and everything that he made, that he authored, not like Klingon, which is something that Star Trek had little bits and pieces of, but is mostly something that the fans created. It's like, no, he fucking created all of this stuff. And he created history, he created geography, made maps, like all of that he developed. And so all of that exists in like the songs and the poetry, the, the history of this world, all of that exists. And so they had all of that to pull from because um, I think this is one of the reasons why the Lord of the Rings is so successful is it's able to convince you so deeply and heavily that this world is something that is real. And the movies have to do that, but also do it visually. And so I think one of the things that that Bilbo choice does is starting with a character that, one, you're introduced to him in the prologue as this is a guy that had adventures. He's the guy that had, whether you know about The Hobbit or not, this is the dude that had some weird adventure with some like weird, like gross like imp man and got this ring and he's had the ring the, the one ring that he didn't know was this like evil ring he's had it the whole time and he's some guy that's like he's some past hero that's had all these adventures and having him as your anchor point immediately gives you a character that has tremendous history in the world and having a character that has history in the world is one of the major ways you convince people that this world exists because this guy has been alive for 111 years at this point he has been around 111 years <laughs> Yes. Sorry. I love his birthday. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he's. He, and, and I think, again, whether you've seen or read The Hobbit, um, and so for me, like, I always just love the all the focus on Bilbo at the beginning of the extended version of Fellowship because Bilbo's, you know, my guy. I love The Hobbit so much that I love seeing him. Um, and I love, like, Ian Holmes' performance is so good. Ian Holmes' Bilbo is so fucking good. It, yeah. It is because he. Like, there is a Hobbit movie that exists in my head from before there was the Hobbit trilogy where Ian Holm is Bilbo. And I can just see the entire thing because he wears it all on his sleeves. He's in this yes. trilogy for like half an hour total. But he brings to bear the complete reality of Bilbo's existence. It's yeah. amazing. And he just convinces you so much of the history of this world. And, and that, for me, is the number one reason why that instinct of having Bilbo there is what you want and what you need. Because he's, man, he's the guy, man. He's the, he's the hero. He's the man. Like, this is a, a weird reference, but it's a reference I'm going to make, even though it's not going to work for you. Because I've been kind of stepping back into Gundam stuff a little bit recently because Gundam's really good. Um, and it just reminds me of the mobile. There's you have the original Mobile Suit Gundam show, and then like five years later, they made a sequel called Zeta Gundam. And in Zeta Gundam, they do this thing where you have a whole new protagonist, and about twenty episodes in or so, they reintroduce Amuro, who's the protagonist from the original series. And so, and you have the new the new protagonist meet the old protagonist, and it kind of has that feel to it of me of like. Being able to visit this old aging hero while he's on his way out as a way to like kind of help introduce and develop the new hero has this like potency to me as a storytelling device that is so rare to see enacted because it you know it needs this sort of very canny storytelling approach, um, but it's something that allows me to really graft onto the very naive new protagonist approach is like. It's a little bit of this passing of the torch effect. And there's even if you in this movie, you don't see all Bilbo's adventures, that performance in the way they frame it and the way he's introduced through the prologue 
is enough for just within the context of this movie alone to do that passing of the torch that makes Frodo feel like he has earned the slot of being the main character. Not just he is not just arrived there, but like he has been, you know, sort of put up there by, by someone who has gone through the shit. Yeah. And I, I'll say right now, um, you know, we're, we're going to talk probably here and, and elsewhere throughout this series about the extended cuts. I'm not putting down the theatrical cuts. Those are the movies that like won the Oscars and wowed us all. You know, the first time around. So, you know, if you're just starting out and you're intimidated by the four hour length of the extended cuts, totally start with the theatrical. That's fine. I just think you'll come to love these versions because what they tend to do, as we're describing here, is they bring back in more Tolkien esque flourishes. And those, I think, almost always, like, they make it feel truer to itself. Uh, there's a very yeah. real argument to be made that Return of the King is better in its theatrical cut, and we'll get to that for specific reasons. But even there, while there are some missteps, missteps in that extended cut, I love all the Tolkien-esque flourishes so much because these movies are so honed into the heart of Tolkien that I think when you put some more of that in, it just feels like it is more of its best self. And I think the Bilbo change is one of those. Um, yes. All right, so this whole stretch of the movie, Sean, though, you know, you have the party, and that's really fun. You have Gandalf, you know, running off to investigate the case of the ring, and you have all these scenes, and it's amazing. This is also, though, one of the stretches where they excise the most amount of material from the book. Because the basically the journey to Rivendell, you know, in the in the book, like most of that is not here in the movie. You have the adventures with Farmer Maggot and Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Downs, and before you even get to that, you have the whole thing where Frodo waits seventeen years between Bilbo's birthday party and when Gandalf comes back to give him the message about the Ring, the um, the Secrets in the Dark chapter, and or, no, that's not what it's called. Why am I, why am I getting that wrong? It's. Uh... It's the Shadow of the Past. That's the that's the title. It was originally the title of the first book, but he changed it to Fellowship of the Ring. Anyway, you have the whole Shadow of the Past chapter. That's 17 years. Then when Frodo decides he has to leave the Shire, he takes a full year to do it. And first he moves to Brandywine, and Mary gets him a house in Buckland, and they move to Buckland, and they like have a night there taking baths and singing songs and everything. And then they have to go through the old forest, and that's where Tom Bombadil rescues them. It's all been excised. It, this is the most like compressed area where they take plot from the book and turn it into the movie in the entire trilogy. Um, and while I love all that material in the books, it is not missed here because they do such a good job streamlining it while keeping all the character stuff intact and all of the narrative stuff intact. I think it's a really impressive way they do that because it is one of the harder segments of the book to to adapt. <laughs> Yeah, because I, th- I think there's a lot of stuff there that, like, th- were a lot of smart changes. Of one, it's always something that, like, I kind of forget about sometimes is that in, in obviously, like, ages work a little bit different for hobbits than it does for humans. Um, but Frodo's in his, like, 40s or something, He's right? 50. Like, he's, he leaves on his 50th birthday. Yeah. So it's like, you know, again, that's not, like, 50 for hobbit is not quite as old as it is for as 50 for a human. But he's still, like, a guy. Like, he's a man. Like, he's a grown man. Um, and there's just always something about that that I think works fine in the book. If you if in the movies they're like, oh, and Frodo is like on his fiftieth birthday he leaves, and you're like, what? <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, you've been sitting around for eighteen years or some shit. Like, what? What? How have you not left yet? Like, you have to. The movies need to sell Frodo at the beginning as being a naive protagonist, um, because he is a naive, and he is in the books also. Um, but I think it would be very hard to show that in a movie. Where it's like, you know, a movie can't describe things, it has to show things to you. And so the visual language of a naive protagonist is you have, you know, babyface Elijah Wood here. 
Like, he's... You need him to be babyface Elijah Wood, and it would just have been very complicated and weird and confusing trying to communicate all that kind of information. Um, and then, you know, Tom Bombadil, if they had... if. The Tom cutting Tom Bombadil had to have been the single easiest ad- adaptation choice there is in in adapting Lord of the Rings. Whoever's adapting it, like you just don't. I think the only extraneous Lord of the Rings material that has adapted the books that has ever retained the Tom Bombadil shit I've ever seen is there was a Game Boy Advance Fellowship of the Ring game that was like an RPG. I have it. Yes, that they have basically all that Tom Bombadil stuff in there. That was when you had this weird situation where EA had the movie license, and but other people could get the book license. And so EA was making movie-based games, but there were other Lord of the Rings-based games trying to capitalize on the popularity of the movies, but couldn't use the movie stuff, but they could use stuff from the books. So they couldn't use, like, Viva Mortensen, but they could have a different-looking Aragorn and stuff, and they would put, like, Tom Bombadil in there. I think Tom Bombadil works fine in the book, generally speaking. Like, I, that is the one part of Lord of the Rings that I do think drags on for too long, and where maybe J.R. Tolkien went, delved a little bit too deeply into his excesses um, as an author. But for sure, for a movie, that would never have worked. That would have never flowed. No, but I mean, there were fans back in the day who were like, not angry about it, but were like disappointed because they loved Tom Bombadil. Like, my dad loved Tom Bombadil. Like, one of his favorite characters in fiction, you know? And I remember when, when the movies, in the year between the theatrical release and the extended cut coming out, there were rumors like, are we going to get Tom Bombadil in the extended cut? Which would be the weirdest, like, knocking a wall down and building a cathedral you've ever done, right? Um, but like, uh, and what it was, where the rumor came from is there was a Lord of the Rings trading card game around the movies. Do you remember this? Yes, I have a, I have no idea where it is now. It's probably in our storage room, but I had some of those. I had, I had them like too. like a whole big tin. Yeah. Yeah. We played it and there was a Tom Bombadil card. So there was an actor who got dressed up as Tom Bombadil and that picture went around the internet as like proof on message boards that they shot the Tom Bombadil stuff. People were much easier to fool in 2001 when you could not get like, you had to wait to download images on the internet, you know? Mm-hmm. This is in the era when for to watch a trailer, you had to download it via QuickTime. Yeah. Fuck it, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yes. No, I mean, all of that, yes. They're obvious cuts, but I think it's also worth saying how skillfully they, like, keep the movie moving from, you know, Bilbo leaves, and it's this really nice moment, but then Gandalf gets to fucking work because he's worried about this ring, and he goes and finds out this information, and he brings it back to Frodo, and Frodo has to flee, and Frodo and Sam set off on their journey, and, and Gandalf goes and talks to Saruman, and then Frodo is being chased by the Nazgul, and they get to Bree, and then they meet Aragorn. Like, it's it's a very long languid part of the book. Like, it's the most epic poem style thing in the book it reminds me of like the telemachy in the odyssey or something where you're kind of like i don't know why all of this is here but it's kind of interesting you know um but in the movie they take that and make it very very cinematic in its pace yeah i think one of the things they do um that really works well is they kind of by cutting out a lot of that stuff and and kind of changing some of that they make the the Nazgul or the Ringwraiths like much sharper presences and much sharper threats. So because they're just more omnipresent in the movie version, which I think works really well. Because especially that you know, five, one of my favorite shots of these movies is that shot of uh, Minas Morgul's doors opening up and the writers riding out from it, and it's just got this such a ghastly, otherworldly look to it. Um, and it's 
and, and you know, it's from that moment you're like always under threat of like they are coming for Frodo and you just get those occasional scenes of them coming up and like some like random hobbit on the outskirts of the Shire is like, Baggins, like, Baggins, like they're that way, they're that way and they're like, Purr! and then the, the ring rays fly off, you know, it's, it's that whole part of the book of building up the menace of the ring rays feels much sharper than, or of the movies feels much sharper than in the books. You have a lot of, like, just sort of, like, here's a bunch of little adventures, and you have, like, your whole thing with the Barrow Whites and fighting little skeleton guys and stuff. Here, it's just like, nope, it's Nazgul. Like, they are after Frodo, and, and they are kind of the threat for the whole first disc of, of the movie. Well, and that, I was going to say that, Sean. This is part of why I think of this one especially as disc one, disc two, is because... Disc one has its own antagonists, the Nazgul. They are vanquished by Arwen at the end. We think, you know, there's more in the, in the subsequent films, but we don't see them again in the second half of this movie, which is part of why the structure works so well and why I think for a three-hour film it moves at such a good clip is that you they overcome something in the first half and they have something new to overcome in the second half, and that's very smart. I think if we're if we're the still the Nazgul coming after them on the river at the end. That wouldn't play as well as if you had the new threat of the Urukai. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, all right, let's talk about some of the characters because we're going to have so many to get to. We should probably start with the ones we've met so far. Um, I mean, I think it goes without saying, Sean, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is perfectly cast. Is that a oh, accurate yes. statement? 100%. Yeah, it is. it's just fucking yeah it's amazing i mean there are lots of big fantasy properties that people point to as being really well cast and it's true harry potter is impeccably cast game of thrones is impeccably cast i don't think they can hold a fucking candle to lord of the rings because those are properties or those are adaptations of fairly recent properties this is like lord of the rings was like a 60 year old book at the time this movie comes out and you're having to cast you know images of people who exist in the readers heads around the world and just person to person to person they got every goddamn one of them right we already talked about ian holm as bilbo that had to be one of the hardest he's fucking bilbo baggins leonard nimoy wrote a song about him come on <laughs> but then you've got the four main hobbits frodo sam mary and pippin and they're all so great yeah they're they're let's let's start with frodo let's talk about frodo a little bit because he is like he's so the focal point um and he's Played by my man crush, Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood is so good in this. He's so good. He's he's so good in this. He's so good as, like, a person. I, I love, just love him. I love why Elijah Wood does not do, like, a ton of acting anymore. He's been in some things, and everything I've seen him in, I always... I just love watching him work. He's one of those actors who I think is genuinely... Like, he is, he's not, like, this magnetic screen presence in the sense of, like you know, a big movie star who, like, is, like, super sexy or something, uh, like a Chris Hemsworth who, like, grabs you through just sheer force of abs. But, like, he's just a really human, watchable actor. And I think that's a really important quality he brings to Frodo is that he feels like a relatively normal guy in this situation, in this case, a normal hobbit. And I, I think he has to do so much throughout these three movies non-vocally because he is this man where carrying literally the weight of the world on his shoulders or in his pocket. And I think the way he illustrates that throughout the three movies is extraordinary, but, but never more so than in this first film. He's, he is, it's beautiful work. And I think it's underrated. Yeah. And you know, because he has, this movie has like that really powerful contrast of you start with him being this like happy go lucky kid reading the book under the tree, like parting with his, with his wizard buddy and his old uncle. Um, and, and so you get to have that at the beginning of the movie. And then at the end, 
you know, he's been stabbed and, and like, almost died from that. And he's seen, you know, the, the man he sort of, in many ways, respects more than anybody else. But also, like, feels the most safe with Gandalf is killed. Um, and he's, you know, basically assaulted by Boromir. And so he, he goes through all of that, all while being tempted by, like, a ring... And, like, a, a thing so powerful and so awful that he, like, is constantly meeting, like, people who are, you know, the most powerful people living in this world. People like Gandalf and Galadriel. That he's like, hey, you want this thing? And they're like, fuck no, man. Uh-uh. No, no. I ain't, I ain't fucking with that shit. It's like, I'm, I'm like, a weird little short 50-year-old dude. <laughs> I cannot, I cannot, like, you're really, you're making me do the ring shit. Like, I'm the guy. You mean I'm the one who has to like this dude's like the king, the lost king of the greatest kingdom of men. Here's this elvish prince. Here's this like you know really cool dwarf dude. Here's like an elven king. You're a wizard and a literal demigod. You're this like three thousand year old elf witch. Like all these amazing people, and he has to go up with all these people and be like, "Do you want to take this?" And they're all like, "I can't fuck with that shit, man." He's like, "Well, then I guess I have to do it." And slowly, like you know, carry that with him and carry that resolve, but also show like he has to show so much of how much that burden of carrying that ring eats away at him. Which is one of those things that if he's not able to sell that, the entire premise of the story falls apart. Because it's, you know, something that is, can be conveyed really well in prose text. Because you can just imagine and, like, you're just conveying directly the feelings to the reader. Because you can just describe them. In movies, it has to be communicated visually. And that's all that is on. Like, you can do some good stuff with the editing. Um, which they do, and, but then all so much of it has to be the performance of Frodo, and and how can you communicate how like you know like life destroying carrying this burden is, and how how like corrupting this ring is to you, um, and and how pure a person you have to be to be able to get as far as Frodo does, and that like acting job is one that I don't think people like you know casual moviegoers like appreciate as much because it's not as you said it's not big sexy Chris Hemsworth, but it is like a truly, you know, powerful performance and a truly daunting task for an actor to have to take up. It's it's amazing work. I, I love it. I I don't want to put down, like, all the actors we have now because I love all the Chris's, you know, all the, the super fit Chris's, Hemsworth, Evans, yeah. Pine, and Pratt that we have now and whatnot. But, like, you know, every major movie now, to be a major movie star, man or woman, you have to be just fit as fuck. And I assume if you're a dude... On a, you know, horse worth of tranquilizer. Or not tranquilizer, uh, steroids. Steroids, you know? yeah. Like, and there's just a disconnect. Whereas, you know, there, there are films of this era that we're talking about, Sean, like this and Spider-Man, some other films, where you could have a Tobey Maguire and you could have an Elijah Wood. And, you know, they're fit. You know, they're not going to die of a heart attack at 45 or anything. But, like, they don't have to look like a fucking demigod to play the role. And I think that... There's just there's a disconnect for me in modern movies where you don't see people who look like people. <laughs> Elijah Wood looks like mm-hmm. people, you know. Exactly. Sam yes. Gamgee, um, um, Sean Astin looks like people, and that is that is such a powerful thing. And and Lord of the Rings is lucky because they kind of have their cake and eat it too because they have fucking Viggo Mortensen over here as Aragorn, um, who just every mom in the world had a huge crush on in the early two thousands. If my mom at least is any indication, um, and and you know they get to do both, but I do think it, it matters that Frodo is the center of the story. Um, 
Harry Potter had the same effect. Like, I, I do kind of miss stories where normal-looking people were at the center of it. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, considering that Harry is, like, ten or something in that true, first book, true, yes. it would have been pretty fucked up if, like, you have this, like, you know, kid Gohan-looking, just, like, super buff-ass... Ten-year-old and, and with Harry, an ass. And, and it is a legitimate criticism that Harry and Hermione, not Ron, sorry Ron, Harry and Hermione both grow up to look much prettier than they do in the books. <laughs> um, uh-huh. So, you know, anyway. Um, but back to Lord of the Rings. Yes, Frodo is so good. And, and I know you were kind of joking there with the whole thing about he's trying to pawn the ring off and no one wants it. But that is how well this movie gets to the themes at the heart of this book. And what I think is interesting about the movies, and this is why I think they're such a good example of adaptation, is they often get to the same points Tolkien was making by taking a different road. You know, Frodo is a very different character on the page. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not just the mediums are different. Frodo is a more static figure. Uh, Tolkien tends to to favor static figures. It's it's it comes from the mythology kind of thing, right? Um, yes. You know, Frodo goes through a lot, but I don't think the changes as a parent. You know, Aragorn. If you haven't read the book in a while, you might forget he reforges the sword of Gondor at the Council of Elrond. Like he decides to become king there, and he's like, "And I'll take the throne when I get to Gondor later in this book." You know, uh, in the movies, they very very wisely, I think, held that off to give Aragorn an arc. But the point of the book is this idea of the ring as this corrupting force. The ring, which I think is still the most ingenious MacGuffin in the history of fiction, because it is both nothing in and of itself, but what it stands for is kind of infinite. You can read into the ring sort of whatever you want. The, the various you know, interpretations can do a lot for what the ring is and what it stands for. And, and at its simplest, it is this force of, of evil and of seduction. And, you know, the statement that Tolkien is making about who is the person who can carry this burden, is it the powerful or is it the, the small but, you know, internally mighty? You know, I think they, they narrowed in on that very, very well in these films, and they had Elijah Wood to help them with that. Yes, absolutely. Sean Astin as Samwise Gamgee, also just perfect. I don't even know what to say about all these characters. They're so perfect. Sean yeah, Astin. Perfect. Sorry, what? Yeah, I, I feel like... Um, we there will be more to talk about with Sam in Two Towers: Return of the King. Yes. I feel like he's he has some really good stuff at the end of this movie, but I feel like for most of this movie, he's like he's more in the comic relief bucket with Mary and Pippin. He is, um, and, and Mary and Pippin will evolve too. Yes. In fact, we might yeah. just want to say that about all three of them right now because the other ones are great: Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd. Um, Dominic Monaghan, who went on to be kind of a star after this on Lost and some other TV shows. Um, you know they're all great performances they are you get hints of it in this movie you know you get at the end when mary and pippin decide to sacrifice themselves for frodo is such a great moment um some of those comic moments are also i think very full of character like i always i love the scene when mary and pippin wrestle with boromir up on the hill Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean one it's it's funny but it's also kind of heartbreaking because it's this moment where boromir gets to be a good guy and it's also setting up who boromir is going to die for at the end exactly yeah it's that going back to the thing you said about everything has to stand for every action has to stand for multiple things or mean multiple yeah. things is that it, it brings the connection between boromir and mary and pippin while also developing boromir so that you know you care when he betrays everyone at the end you care if he's just like you can see boromir doesn't have to be an asshole like yeah. it's it didn't have to go that way exactly um and sean astin gets some moments to shine here too especially at the end but yes i mean Sean Astin uh, essentially becomes the co-lead of the trilogy by Return of the King. Like, he is the hero, the most heroic figure of the final film. 
And that's amazing. Uh, I I don't think anyone in 2001, not to put Sean Astin down, it's just we hadn't seen it yet, what kind of range he was going to have. I remember there being talk about this at the time, that Sean Astin should have gotten an Oscar for that last film. And I think it's true. Um, Mm -hmm. He totally fucking should have. Um, But yeah, we'll talk about them more later. I will say, I think it's Pippin who has maybe my favorite line reading of Fellowship of the Ring, which is... Which is, uh, we've got eggs, sausage, and some nice crispy bacon. <laughs> I just love the way he says that on Weathertop. Um, they have several conversations about food I love. But I say the phrase to myself probably like twice a week. Oh, some nice crispy bacon. <laughs> like the way he says it. Yeah. It's so good. I mean, Billy Boyd, because it, it is his real accent, but it's like he has easily the best accent yes. uh, in these movies to me. It's just fucking delicious. It's, it's an amazing accent. Uh, him and Dominic Monaghan, when they talk about food, are really good at it, which is what you want out mm-hmm. of Marion Pippin. Exactly. Yes. Who who are quite changed from the books, we should say. Mary and Pippin are, are not the goofballs in the book. But I like that they made that change, if for no other reason than it feels like they take more of Hobbit culture with them into the world that way. Mm-hmm. And we get to feel it more as the journey goes along. Yeah, and it's another one of the things that... Because, I mean, you know, it's, it's important to say that thing with like Frodo and Aragorn of that they gave them more of a character arc. That's true of almost every single character. Like one of the main, and I think it's smart. Like I think it's a canny choice that, you know, you know, again, it goes back to the thing that film has to show you things. It cannot tell you things. And so the film needs to show you these characters developing. It needs to show you changing them because you, in film, you're focused so much on the character because it's the person you're seeing on screen. And so it's like, I think it's, not impossible for films to have static characters, but I think it's much, much more difficult for a film to pull off like a truly static character. Um, so I think it was just very smart of them to say, let's, you know, still be faithful and still like, you know, the material they pull in giving the characters character arcs or material is material like easily extrapolated from the books. But they do sort of, as you say for Mary and Pippin, one of the things they do is that they make them more comic relief and more silly at the beginning. But that helps make the change by the time you get to Return of the King to see them like have taken a true interest in the world outside of themselves and in like fighting for something much bigger than they are like that change feels really powerful. And it's one of the things that helps make that last movie work is you see the accumulation of that for basically all of the characters. Uh, Tolkien, you know, I think if you look at the arcs in the book, he is more concerned with how characters stations change it's a very British mm-hmm. thing, right? Yeah. It's not that Merry and Pippin necessarily become better people in the book. It's that they go from being hobbits, just being hobbits in the Shire, to literally in the timeline in the appendices, they are buried next to Aragorn, King Elisar, at the end of his life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in Gondor, um, you know, he becomes the th- like Pippin becomes the thane of Rohan. I think is is what it is. You know, um, I might be getting those mixed up. Merry is Rohan, Pippin is Gondor. Anyway, yes. Um, but yes, yeah, so like the, these are big happenings that happen in the movie and in any movie. I agree, you have to make it character internal motivated as well. Um, so they do that here. All right, then we got the big one. Ian McKellen as Gandalf. Has any person ever been more the person they are on screen than Ian McKellen as Gandalf? No, maybe J.K. Just... Simmons in in uh, Spider Man. Yes, yeah, J.K. Simmons is the other one. But of course, you know, J.K. Simmons doesn't have to, you know, pull. Hold up the Spider-Man movies because it's not about uh, J. Jonah Jameson. It's not to say that Lord of the Rings is the story of Gandalf, but Gandalf is such a central figure. And particularly this movie has all the juicy Gandalf stuff in it. Gandalf you know, the Grey. He's, he's Gandalf yes. the White in the other films. 
Yeah, so you have that, because it is like a, an important distinction, and he is a kind of a very different person, like both in the movies and in the books. Um, he, he changes a lot when he is sort of resurrected, and he has this kind of Jesus-y kind of moment he gets. Um, although I don't know if Jesus ever just like straight up tried to trick all of his followers when he came back to life and be like, I'm actually the devil. No, I'm not. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry, Mom. Sorry, I'm Jesus. Um, Someone should do yeah. a Jesus movie where that happens. It's like, I was just fucking with you. I don't know. I'm hanging out with this like, weird enchanted forest. I don't know. It seems cool. <laughs> um, I've never fully understood why Gandalf is such a dick when he's reintroduced. It's like, why Why? Why you like this? Why Why you got to be a dick, Gandalf? Um, but yeah, so you get Gandalf the Grey. And, and one of my favorite stretches of all of these movies is just all the stuff at the beginning with Gandalf and Bilbo. And just them hanging out and chatting and being old buds. Like One of my favorite line reads is... Um, Gandalf and Bilbo on the side of that hill playing like you know with their uh, pipes and and Bilbo just says Gandalf my old friend this will be a night to remember and puts the pipe in his mouth gorgeous and it's that stuff with with Gandalf at the beginning you get to see his like jolly old wizard old kind of grandpa side to him but it's that Ian McKellen's sort of like ability to take that and then turn it into a serious moment immediately and you know all the moments he just gets to flip out and go like I'm like you like I've been like fun grandpa for a little bit here but I feel like we've kind of messed up our boundaries so now I'm going to go full wizard on you so he has that moment where he you know like he freaks out on Bilbo when Bilbo's doing all of his ring shit and just like I'm not trying to rob you I'm trying to help you and then and then but my favorite one is at the council of Elrond when he just starts saying the the fucking ring thing in the tongue of Mordor and then the whole world goes black and Elrond just puts his hand over his face. It's like, oh, motherfucker. He's still, okay. Okay, we're doing, <laughs> we're doing this now. It's like, oh, God, Gandalf. It's like, you know, his ability to sort of switch between those modes is so important because you get that sense of Gandalf is this like worldly, kind, earthly figure. Um, but he is also someone who is on this world to serve a greater purpose. Like he's, if you know the the mythology, he's literally a demigod. He's a Maiar. Like he's he's connected to something greater in a much direct sense. And in so much of Ian McKellen's performance communicates those two modes of Gandalf. And to me, that's what's so important about the performance. He has to convey so much range. He has to convey so much grandeur. He has to, like, even if they do not get into the stuff where he is a demigod in these films, you can feel it in the weight of the performance that... You know, like, everybody cries for Gandalf after the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, not because they all, like, knew him intimately, but because it's fucking Gandalf, you know? It would be like if you were there when Jesus died, right? It would be like, uh -huh. that would be, I didn't know that guy very well, but that's traumatic, right? So, mm -hmm. so it's, it's, an in, it's an incredible performance. I don't even quite know how to talk about it. It is truly one of the most iconic performances in the history of the cinema. Do you want to know who... So Ian McKellen was the only actor ever nominated for an Oscar for Lord of the Rings. He was nominated for Fellowship and Best Supporting Actor. He lost to Jim Broadbent, who I love, in a movie I have never heard of called Iris. Fucking what? Yeah, he lost, a movie called Iris. I think it has Judi Dench in it based on the poster. And it has Kate Winslet. It's directed by a guy named Richard Ayer. I have never, ever heard of this movie. Um... And that's like all it was up for. 
And it's just like, again, I don't want to get into the Oscar shit too much. And, you know, I don't want to be like the Lord of the Rings was robbed. It did win 11 for Return of the King. But Ian McKellen was fucking robbed because this is this is as iconic as movie performances get, right? Absolutely. Again, like, this is, like, it makes sense that you wouldn't have given it to him for the other two movies because his role's not as meaty and it's not as central. And so, yeah, this is the one that you give him the Oscar for. Yeah, and, I mean, if for no other reason... You shall not, shall not pass. pass. That is just as iconic as movies get. I, Sean, the moment I knew I was back on my Lord of the Rings shit last night is when that came up. And I did the yell with him in my living room and like put my little invisible spear down into the ground. And it's like, you just, you can't resist it. Um, he is, it's such an amazing performance and you feel him when he's gone. I don't care how many times I see this movie. I don't care how thoroughly I know Gandalf is not dead. When he falls and he is just out of the film... And that fucking music plays by Howard Shore, and and you have that slow motion no from Frodo, and then you have you know fucking the one that kills me is is I think Pippin Billy Boyd's crying on the side of the mountain with with Boromir cradling him. You just you cannot help but get emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's yeah because it is you know Gandalf is that kind of Merlin archetype I mean very deliberately he's that Merlin archetype of like the kindly old wizard and it's the kind of thing that you know like Dumbledore is built from that mold so many kinds of mentor figures are built from that mold um but Gandalf's the best and this version of him is so palpable and yeah that moment that he is gone from the movie you just feel that whole so entirely and it's you know it's something about the way that the the scripting and the plotting and the structure of the movie is done but so much of it is also just losing that performance and like losing that person like like losing that like you know being able to cut to ian mckellen just being there not having that for the rest of the movie you feel that loss yeah absolutely it's uh ian mckellen is is one of the great living actors you know when he passes it will be sad for so many reasons and he will have a, a a deservedly long obituary of of amazing credits, but number one will always be Gandalf, and I think he'd be mm-hmm. proud of that too, you know? Yeah, because heart and soul in this movie, man, heart and soul. All right, anything else to say about this stretch of the film? Maybe up until we meet Strider. Um, I think we covered the it scene. Well. This is a scene that's only in the extended cut, but this is one of the reasons I vastly prefer the extended cut is you don't get any of Frodo and Sam's journey, really, in the theatrical mm-hmm. cut. In extended cut, you get the scene where they see the elves passing. and I want to just note right now, let's cross-reference that thing I said <laughs> like an hour ago about like would you like say there's a scene, and I think is it this scene, and then it ends up being that scene. It happened again just now. I know. It's a beautiful—because in the book, that's a whole chapter where they travel with the elves. Um, and it's beautiful, but I think just that evocation of it there, it also does a lot to set up Sam's motivation going into Rivendell and everything. Um, and the music Howard Shore composed for that. Oh God, I love that scene. Yeah. And it's one of those that, cause that's one I definitely remember is not in the theatrical editions because I think it's maybe like the scene I saw in the extended editions that like made me realize like, Oh shit, like this, okay, this is, this is like the version of this movie because I get that for some people that those kinds of things slow down the movie and you don't want that. For me, you know, I'm I'm not saying I want Tom Bombadil, 
but I want to be able to luxuriate in that world a little bit. And those kinds of little moments like that, they might not seem like much, and it makes sense why they are cut when you have to make a theatrical version. But if you're able to just say, like, mm, this is the version that, like, people that I've already bought into the movie, this is the version of the movie for you, like, those are the kinds of scenes that I appreciate the most about the extended edition. Absolutely. There's, there's one, maybe this will transition us into Aragorn later, but there's a scene with Aragorn also that is cut where after they meet him and they're on the road, this is before Weathertop, uh, Frodo wakes up in the middle of the night and Aragorn is singing the, the song of Baron and Luthien. Um, the Lay of Baron and Luthien, and it's one of Vigo's best moments in the trilogy. It's this beautiful little scene that that gives Strider so much more internality than you thought he had. Um, and I, I, the moment I switched over last night, and and I, I kind of skipped through the first hour again of the extended cut to see all the scenes I'd missed, is because I realized there's a scene in Rivendell where you, you, where Gandalf says, you know, there may be another. I don't know that's not what he says, but it's like the Yoda line of like, you know, there may be one more who can rule this world. And they cut to Aragorn. I realized in the theatrical cut we don't know anything about Aragorn yet, but in the in the extended cut. That moment and a couple of just little other trims here and there give you a better sense of of the weight of this man, uh, and I like that. Um, also, Viggo Mortensen just doing his very like naturalistic singing now and again in the trilogy is one of my favorite little things. I love his mm-hmm. his voice as Aragorn when he just starts going into song. Yeah, me too. All right, but I mean, let's talk about it. We meet Strider yep. and Bree. Viggo Mortensen, just another one where like, holy crap, they hit the jackpot. Did you know, Sean? Fun fact, they did not start shooting this movie with Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was... it's always, it's something that always surprises me is like how like, you know, kind of chaotic the Aragorn casting was and that they kind of back, who was it that? I want to say his name was moment? Stuart Townshend. Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and much younger guy. Aragorn would have been younger. He would have been less rugged. I he's an Irish actor. Um, yeah, uh, he's forty six now. He was born in seventy two, so he would have been young for that. I feel like he would have been twenty eight when they started mm-hmm. shooting, and it was just it, it clearly didn't work. I'm glad they got Vigo. Vigo looks like he stepped out of the Tolkien book, dirt and grime and all, and it's just it's one of the most just perfect lived in performances here. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Because that is the thing that like. You know, it's one of the things when you watch the extended, like, bonus stuff and you see how much of the, like, how much he threw himself into, like, the sword training and the horses and everything and, like, the bond he made in, like, that very sort of material connection with the character in the world. You know, and he was, was one of the actors that had to, like, learn, like, Elvish and all that kind of stuff. Like, he just threw himself so much into that performance, which is one of the reasons why it's so surprising that he's the one, one of the ones that, like got in at the last second because it's like really like he like it as you said it looks like they like went into like like called Viggo Mortensen into cast and he like came in with a sword and like his horse was like you know reined up outside the office or you know where they were doing the auditions or whatever like it just seems like he came in like you know with his hair all drenched up because he hadn't washed it in like a month or something because he'd been out hunting with a bow and arrow like that's just so the sort of sense you get of the character it's so lived in he has also maybe the best moment of improvisation in the trilogy but we'll get to that in the two towers Yes, exactly. You know what I'm the talking other, about. Yes. And, and then the other thing to quickly just say about the, uh, the Aragorn casting is, of course, that they considered getting Nicolas Cage. And they asked what? Nicolas Cage. I didn't know that. And Nicolas, and Nicolas Cage turned it down. And that is like, 
one of the most fast. It's one of those like acting or casting stories that you, like the whole history of cinema would be fucking completely different if Nicolas Cage had been cast as Eric Gordon. I mean, they did a they they in the I think this was more in the Miramax version because Lord of the Rings started at Miramax as a two film project and then Harvey fucking Weinstein that bastard mm. told them they could only do one movie and then Peter said bye and took it to New Line and made them you know billions of dollars. So yeah, Peter fucking put took up put picked up a thousand page you know condensed like one volume version of Lord of the Rings threw it in Harvey Weinstein's face broke his nose with this like you make one movie of that you fucking rape this piece of shit and walked out. Yes, uh, but I think the other one at the Miramax time was uh, Gandalf. Do you remember who they almost cast as Gandalf? Yes, this is great, Sir Sean Connery. They almost got. They wanted to get Sean Connery, and he said no because he didn't understand the script. Which is understandable. Yeah, you know, if you're not a Lord of the Rings guy, I could see that be like, what the fuck is this shit? Also, like, was was Sean Connery retired at that point, or is that like no, right he, before he retired? After well, he retired after League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which right. which was the movie he made instead of Lord of the Rings. And when he saw that his movie flopped and Lord of the Rings became Lord of the Rings, he said, "I do not understand this industry anymore," and left it. That's his story that he always tells. Yeah. So yeah. yeah so that would have been weird casting. Like, can you God? Can you imagine? Everything else being the same except for Sean Connery's Gandalf and Nicolas Cage's Aragorn. Like, just how fucking different would these movies be? Well, they wouldn't be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. If you messed up any one of these roles, it doesn't work. Like, uh-huh. there's kind of no minor parts in Lord of the Rings that you get to fuck up, I, I don't think. Because um, everyone has their chance to play. You know, Aragorn we'll talk about more in the subsequent films, obviously. Uh, although there's a moment with Aragorn in the third act that we'll get to when we do a deep dive into the third act because we're going to have to do that. All right. Everything at Rivendell. Uh, Rivendell is one of those sets that I feel like we almost take for granted now because it's like, yeah, they just they built fucking Rivendell. And it's like, how fucking ungrateful are we that we just look at that and be like, oh, they built Rivendell. They built Rivendell, Sean. It's insane. Uh-huh. I mean, that's yeah. something we haven't talked about enough is the location work in this film is extraordinary. Nobody does location work anymore. Nobody ever does good location work. It's always fucking sound stages and blue screens. They went throughout fucking New Zealand to shoot these movies, and it's one of the reasons they're so great. And when they do build sets, they're fucking Rivendell. It's amazing. Yeah, and and then just also the the like just the concept and the design of all of it. Like one of my favorite shots uh, in these movies is that sort of establishing shot of Rivendell. Where you have, like, it's such a canny addition of you have, like, the elf on the horse going around that ridge to go down the hill. And, but Rivendell's in the background and you have the waterfall. Like, it's such a fucking perfect, beautiful mm-hmm. shot that, yeah, it just looks like a painting that someone made after reading the books. Well, um, and, and this, is, this is why, one of the reasons why you don't get movies like Lord of the Rings anymore is that to do the things they did in terms of location shooting and production design and sets and all and matte, there are matte paintings in this movie. I forgot that. Did, Fuck yeah. There are full Fuck on yeah, there are. they're beautiful. Um and and to do all of that, they needed years of pre-production. They spent years prepping these movies. They were like I was watching a featurette about this today to to recollect uh, to 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 
to shake my memory a little bit. And, you know, Peter Jackson didn't just storyboard all three films once. He storyboarded them, then built miniatures of all the locations, brought a miniature camera in and did every camera angle, then has his storyboard artist draw based on the camera tests he did, then they did CG animatics of the movies. Like, and, and within that, they had so much concept art and they built and rebuilt the sets and they did all this location scouting and they were ready to go on they had a 15 month shoot for the main trilogy and they knew what they were doing from the word go because they prepped it so thoroughly there is not a movie made today that has that kind of prep time there are just the Mm -hmm. studio there are not enough studios making movies that there is a studio like new line cinema circa 1998 who needed to take a big risk and was willing to give this weird New Zealand dude who had only directed some horror movies the time and care and money it took to build this world. The Lord of the Rings movies were actually not that expensive. The entire trilogy cost less than $300 million. Movies routinely cost more. Single movies. Like, every Hobbit movie cost more than the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. And mm-hmm. it's, it's the expense of Lord of the Rings wasn't money. It was time. And I think you see that when you get to Rivendell. They'd lived in that set and made it. Absolutely. And it's just one of those things where, you know, one of the things that connects it more to that sort of like Hollywood epic thing like a Ben-Hur is that, you know, as you said, it's not necessarily just about the like expense and like having to pay for everything. It is like you have just the logistics of having to deal with physical locations and building big elaborate sets and building all the props and getting extras and all that kind of stuff that like there's just a logistics side of it that requires all that prep work. And that's something that if you're relying on digital effects to handle like 90% of that for you, and you're doing like, ah, we'll do like a little bit of location scouting, but it'll be a a decent location that we'll fix it with in post with digital effects. And we'll like, and we'll do, we'll have some extras, but we'll put in most of them in post. And then, you know, we'll have, you know, some props, but, and most of the props will be like, we'll have like, you know, little post like, so he's like, you'll be wearing like a couple of like prop things, Robert Downey Jr., but it'll mostly be like a weird green screen suit. It's like when you can pave over a lot of those things by using digital effects, you don't necessarily have to do all this like intense preparatory work. But all that intense preparatory work meant that they knew 100% what they were doing when they were doing it. And everything they were doing felt real and physical and lived in. Yeah, and it's also just a fact that matte paintings... And wood and plaster are cheaper than CGI, you know? Yes. Because CGI takes a lot of manpower. If you do it fast, which is what a lot of the studios have to do now, it takes a lot of money and manpower and rendering work and things like that. But, you know, you can get people to go build a fucking set and paint a fucking matte painting. And I feel like Lord of the Rings is still, I just, I feel like an old man yelling at clouds sometimes. But it's like, this was not even 20 years ago, guys. Uh Remember how to do it. Anyway, where were we? Rivendell's cool. Rivendell. Hugo yes. Weaving. Of course he's Elrond. Yes. I love that. Him and his big fucking forehead. I love that Hugo Weaving was Elrond and Agent Smith at the same time, and he pulled it off flawlessly. I mean, it's basically the same character. Yes. All right, we meet the rest of the... So let's talk about the Council of Elrond scene. That's a really impressive one in terms of... Again, that's like the... I believe that's the longest chapter in Fellowship, at least. Um, yeah, it goes. It's a, that chapter goes. Yeah, it's a huge chunk of exposition. Uh, 
And in the movie, they do a really good job boiling it down to what is the key things you have to, you know, put together. You have to establish the ring as a major threat. You have to establish there is one place we can destroy this thing. And Frodo is the guy who's going to do it. While also introducing us to the rest of the Fellowship, some other characters from Middle-earth, showing the conflict. And it's less than 10 minutes of screen time. It is a very economic slice of film. Yes. Yeah, because it has to introduce Boromir, Gimli, and Legolas, um, and then it has to develop Aragorn's role. um, And then, as you said, it has to be the turning point for Frodo, where he goes from someone who has been along the journey because of, like, coincidence, and now he has to make the deliberate choice. It's like, no, this isn't something that's just happening to me. This is a choice I'm making to keep on doing this because there's no one else who can. I'm in a uh, screenwriting class right now uh, at Iowa. It's really fun. Uh, you know, I I'm, I'm feel like I'm reanalyzing a lot of movies based on the writing as I learn more. And in Sid Field's classic screenplay book, he, he writes about how one of the key things for any good screenplay is the moment where characters go from being reactive to active. Because most mm-hmm. characters start out reactively but they have to become active. This is a great example of that because Frodo has it thrust upon him. He kind of has no other choice because, you know, the Nazgul are coming to kill him and they, they do stab him through the shoulder. We didn't talk about that scene. That scene is horrific. But anyway, um, but then he becomes active in this very dramatic moment. It's a perfect example of, of a midpoint, which is the point where the, the drama takes a significant shift in the second act. Um, it's so well done. Yeah, it's perfect. And then you just... For me, the standout of that scene, though, is Sean Bean. Like, there's a reason why that one does not simply walk into Mordor. Speech is, like, has kind of been memefied. It is just, like, Sean Bean, like, so owns that scene. And, like, he, he does so much work of conveying um, how sort of, like, on the brink so much of the world is. Because we haven't gotten there and seen it yet, you know, we'll be there. We got little glimpses of Gondor, like, vaguely when Gandalf goes and visits it. But we don't really know anything about it. And so part of, like, the journey of these movies is you're, as you are traveling, like, south and into the west over to, towards Mordor, um, you are getting exposed to, like, the closer you get to Mordor, the worse the world is. And so it's like, you know, we'll get to Rohan in the Two Towers, then we get right up to, like, the Black Gates in Gondor in Return of the King, and you see how much more desperately those areas have been affected. And that is set up by Boromir's performance here, where he talks about, like, your lives are you know, kept safe by the blood of my people. Um, and, and that Gondor is actually on the front lines. It's something where when I was younger and watching these movies, I've always been some of this like, yeah, Bormir's a dick. Um, and he, cause he comes across as a dick, especially if I think if you're a kid, the older I get and the more I reassess it. And like the more of an adult I, I become, as he's like, Oh, he's not a dick. Like he's at his wits end because it's like, he is this like, you know, he's a Patriot who's fighting for his country. And, is seeing like this one opportunity to save all these people that are constantly dying, having to defend this border that none of these other people are contributing to. Um, so of course he's going to want to take it. Of course he's going to want the fucking nuke, you know, because it's like he's, he's watching these people die every single day. And so that like that performance gets stronger and stronger to me every single time I watch this movie as I get older. Two other lines I love in this scene. Haveldad Legolas. I say that all the fucking time. It's one of my favorite movie quotes. Haveldad. And then Gimli during the big like row where they're all fighting, he goes, never trust an elf. I love, yeah. I love John Reese davies there. I mean, this is probably a good moment to talk about our last three members of the Fellowship. Uh, Boromir, Gimli, and Legolas. You know, uh, Legolas we don't get a ton of in this movie. 
It's Orlando Bloom, who I think is very good in the role. It's it's the least meaty role of the Fellowship characters, but he certainly mm-hmm. gets the physicality down pat. I love watching Legolas in action doing the, the arrow moves. They get a little ridiculous with it in movies two and three. Yes, we'll get there. Yeah. My favorite Legolas move in the whole trilogy comes... I. I, want to, I think it's on the river near the end where he, he takes out an arrow, stabs an orc in the eye, pulls it back, knocks it, and shoots another orc. That's probably my favorite Legolas move in the trilogy. Yep. Um, but also, Sean, have you had this effect in Destiny where when you're using the combat bow, you just think that you're Legolas in Lord of the Rings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because that's the I feel like that was the like goal with the bow in Destiny Two was how can we make people feel like they're Legolas? Because like the speed and accuracy with which you're firing that bow, I've never done bow combat in a video game that felt more like Legolas. And I love that the only game that got that right was a space game. Yeah, because it's the thing where you know Legolas's bow antics are not realistic, but you know he, of course, they're not. Like he's thousands. Like he was at the fucking battle. Like I love that little tiny shot you get of Orlando, like little baby Orlando Bloom, um, in the battle, um, against Sauron. Like he's just like mixed in with all the other troops. Um, so it's like he's an elf. He's been around for a while. He can do some cool shit. Um, and yeah, and so you're like right. Like he doesn't have a lot of character stuff um which is fair because he's very this character is very old like he feels like elves are not the elves and dwarves are both like not very prone to changing much and obviously his relationship to Gimli is sort of the main thing that the sort of the main material that both of them have he has some lovely stuff in in the in film three particularly yeah absolutely but yeah for this movie in particular it is that very like lithe um physicality and you know just little stuff of like him being able like he's like walking on top of the snow that everybody else is having to trudge through like little touches like that um he just owns like the way he walks and moves feels so practiced and assured yeah and then you got john reese davies as gimli again Mm -hmm. just like he stepped out of the book uh one detail i've always loved is is john reese davies is the tallest member of the fellowship in real life yeah. It's part of the magic trick of these films is that with with minimal digital manipulation, they're able to do the sizes of these characters. Like, I always think that Ian McKellen is super tall. He's not. Like, he's normal height, you know? Like, he's not short, but he's not, like, a basketball player or anything. Um, John Rhys-Davies is, like, 6'5 or something. Um, yeah, he's a tall... He, because, you know, like, think back to uh, Raiders of the yeah, Lost right. Ark. Like, he's taller than Harrison Ford. Yes. Like, he's this big big fucking burly guy yeah Yeah, these movies he's like a little burly guy he is um but i love the beard i love the voice john reese davies is the only actor who pulls double duty in the trilogy because we will also meet him as tree beard in the two towers he's so good i love i love gimli gimli does not have a ton in this movie but he has never trust an elf he has uh never or uh the of don't toss me uh, don't toss a dwarf what's the exact nobody tosses a nobody tosses a dwarf yes um, and then, of course, in the extended cut, his beautiful moment with Galadriel, which is yes, he yeah. he plays the ever living hell out of that. It's so yeah. it's so sweet. I think for me, you know, we're not to the scene yet, but I just want to note it while I'm thinking of it. My favorite John Rhys Davis line read in this movie, actually, there's two. Is that you have the stuff at the very end at Almond Hen when he's talking about razor sharp rocks and having to go all that Emin stuff. Wheel. I love the way he says Emin, Emin Wheel. Wheel. Yeah. Um, but my think my favorite line read from him is from when they enter the mines of Moria, and he's talking about how you know this is where my ancestors are from, and they call it a mine, a mine. I, I knew exactly so where you were going with that. It's so good. Yes, oh, I love him. 
Oh, man. And then the moment when he finds out uh, Balin has died, he's really good in that. Just this, like, big theatrical crying. I love that. Yeah, he's great. But the star of the Fellowship in this movie is Mr. Sean Bean. Mm-hmm. I mean, Boromir... We'll get to the end of the movie, but, like, Boromir kind of sells the arc of the movie. <laughs> Elijah Wood does a lot for that, too. Ian McKellen does a lot for that. Aragorn certainly does. But, you know, Boromir, he's the only character who is contained to this one movie. Uh, he has little glimpses of him in the other films in, like, flashbacks and dreams. But his arc is here. It's only in the second half of the film, really. And it is such a fully formed character. I love what you said earlier about he, he lives on his sleeves. He is the guy who's been fighting the actual war, you know. And I think you feel for Boromir so much in this film. Um, you know, in every scene he has, I think you see the depth of torment going on in this guy's heart. I think the moment that really sticks out hard for me is when they're going up the Pass of Karateras and Frodo trips and falls and one of the, one of the best compositions in the movie is when Frodo is down the hill. It's this like slightly tilted frame, and the ring is up, and we do a pull focus onto the ring in the front of the frame. You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then Boromir yeah. picks up the ring, and the way Boromir talks about you know that so much uh, so much anguish should come from so little a thing. That whole speech and how transfixed he is by it. Oh my God, Sean Bean just sells the hell out of this. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, like. I think the Boromir role, it's very. It would be very easy for it to be like this very thankless role. That's like eh, he's this dick that like is evil at the end, and he tries to take the ring and then gets killed. Um, which is kind of how it's played in the animated version of the movies. Like Boromir's this is utterly unremarkable character. He has a fucking Viking helmet that always looks so fucking dumb in that stupid fucking animated movie. Um, which is you know so so, and I don't think Boromir in the books never stands out to me quite as much. In this movie, I think because it's like a very good character to focus in on to help give this one movie a very distinct whole like cinematic arc because like these movies have to do that in a way that the books do not. Like the books do not really give a shit about this is a book that has to have a beginning, middle, and end and like it's conclusive into itself. It, like they, they, I think Jared Tolkien designed them to have some of that. Um, when you had to make the splits, but it's not really what they're for. These movies had to do that, and so them sort of beefing up the Boromir role and and again like kind of giving him more of this tragedy and you get more insight into who he is a lot through the performance of Sean Bean helps give this movie a specific identity and and it's just a really strong performance. Absolutely. We'll talk about it more in a little bit when we do our deep dive on the end of the film because it's such a good ending. Um, all right. The second half of the movie, as I said, they're just cooking with gasoline from beginning to end. You have the the you know the great money shot of them all coming over the ridge and you get the fellowship theme for the first time i remember they used that in trailers uh the first mm-hmm. ever teaser for lord of the rings was them walking up and as they're walking on the side of the screen it said fellowship of the ring december 2001 two towers december 2002 return of the king december 2003 and it was the craziest thing anyone had ever seen that they're just like yeah we're doing three movies in three years here you go here's the fellowship um but you have the passive crateras and all the stuff with the snow. I love the scene with the birds. Oh, that's good. Yes. Um, and and then you get Moria, and I mean the entire passage in the mind of Mines of Moria. You can just kind of like feel 
as the scene is starting up, Peter Jackson, like, behind the camera, kind of, like, flexing his neck, like, cracking his knuckles, like, all right, let's get going here. I'm going to show you guys some shit. And he shows you some shit. Just from the moment they get to that tomb, and, and Gandalf is reading the book, and then Pippin accidentally knocks over the skeleton down into the well, and the sound goes out everywhere and and you start to hear that the lamps igniting and the orcs coming and everyone's coming near them and they're trying to get ready for battle and they brought a cave troll all right and then the cave troll battle and then well that was hard let's run oh shit that's a lot of orcs oh what's this thing it's the ball it is so stupidly good sean well it's just like a you know, like, I think the whole Moria section can, like, you could cut this out and make it its own short film. Like, it's so perfect. Because, and just the way they set up everything, like, I think it's so smart the way that they set up um, as they're going in. You know, so they have, they try to go up the, the path of Katadras, the sort of the Stoey Mountain, and they do the whole thing where, like, Saruman and Gandalf are having their kind of shouting match, um, which is great. And then, and so that drives them into the minds of Moria, and you get this great little monologue by Christopher Lee as like they're like over this montage of them going down over to the doors of Moria, where he's talking about like you know Gandalf, you know what they found when those dwarves dug too deep, and they have he has the book open with like this like artist depiction of of what a Balrog is, um, and so it sets up like like before you go in, it sets up. This is like there is something here, and the way that Gandalf is so like I don't want to go to Tamoria. Anything that's like freaking out Gandalf that much, you know there's something going on here. And so those little teases set you up, and then you're just like that slow buildup of I mean you have the whole Watcher in the water, and then so then they get forced into the the sort of first chamber, and then in that chamber, you know that's where you get the the mine, and it's like wait this isn't a mine, it's a tomb. Because it's full of like dwarven skeletons, and just that slow buildup of you seeing there, there was this great dwarven civilization here um, that has fallen into ruin because of something, and then just kind of piecing together. There's goblins, but there, there's something more here, and then yes, the, the the escalation of that first fight scene, and then the Balrog coming out. It's just perfect. It's just this perfect escalation of tension with little tiny pockets of relief. And then culminating in in us losing our sort of anchor character. I just, it is, it speaks to the craft on display in the Moria sequence mm-hmm. that it does not matter how old I get. It does not matter how many times I've seen this film. That sequence plays like gangbusters. It has not lost a step. It has not lost an ounce of freshness. It was, I mean, if you were in the theater in 2001, that scene just shook the roof off the place in terms of like not that people were like cheering and stuff i mean in the energy in the room as you're watching that unfold like when they get to those stairs and you have that whole action sequence where they're having to jump the one set of stairs to the next and they're collapsing oh my god and then that's not even the end because then you get to the bridge and now we're gonna fight the balrog um and it still plays that way to me it is just one of the most sustained uh sequences of of amazing fantasy action ever it probably is the most you know uh, incredible sustained sequence of fantasy action on film and i think you could just tell when the movie came out and on to today obviously that they had struck on something like there was a new cinematic paradigm unfolding before our eyes yeah because there's there's just so much there i think for me the juiciest moment for sure is that gandalf reading the book then the the skeleton falls and it's tongue 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 and everyone's like 
oh, and, and you know, it gets quiet for a little bit, and everyone's like, mmm, and it's quiet for long enough, they're like, oh, and you get all this, fool of a tooth, throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity, and then he starts to turn around, and then you get the, dum, and he turns around and zoom in on the well, dum, 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 and then, and then cut to, like, that shot back of them, like, in the mines, and dung, 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 and the fucking torch, like, the light of the torches coming up, and then it cuts back to all the people, and the, like, Gandalf and everyone is like, oh, shit, like, that, that moment of just the, you know, the misdirection there, it's one of those areas where it feels like, kind of like Sam Raimi with the Spider-Man movies, you know, Peter Jackson cut his teeth on making, like, low-budget horror movies in New Zealand, and this that that's one of those moments where you can feel that where it's like someone who makes a who's you know cut their teeth on making horror movies knows how to build suspense and execute on misdirection in that way and and that's like the kind of tool set you need to be able to do to pull off that scene because it's perfect it's like beat for beat one hundred percent perfect setting up that that action scene. I wrote in my notes last night actually the same thing you just said that like I actually think Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson doing these the two movie series they did at the exact same moment are more similar than I'd thought before. You know, there's a, there's something to be said that we do not really get seasoned filmmakers making big, like, blockbusters anymore. They generally give them to, like, up-and-comers who, like, cut their teeth on them. And sometimes you get amazing stuff, like Ryan Coogler doing Black Panther, and, like, this guy's, like, getting unleashed on a multi-hundred-million-dollar movie, and you're like, you know, this real huge talent that we all, you know, maybe saw coming out of Creed and Fruitvale Station, but, you know, it's different than, like, Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi had full careers before they did these, and I think there's there's something to be said about that and that skill set going into these. Um... The other thing I wanted to mention in this sequence is uh, oh two things one uh, the sequence you just explained with all the sounds and everything and going down the well last semester um, when I was uh, assistant teaching intro to film we got to the week about sound and I was thinking oh what's a movie I could show a clip from to talk about Lord of the Rings and I just went to that scene because that is such a great scene about sound design and how you create space through diegetic sound you know what I mean. Yes, especially then, like, as you have like all the screams of the goblins when they're running up. Yeah, it's just such a it's a really rich soundscape yes, that they use there. It's great. Uh, also, one scene we kind of glossed over is probably my favorite quiet Ian McKellen moment in the movie is when he's talking mm-hmm. to Frodo in the kind of main hall before they move on. And this is where we get the speech about you know, so do all who live to see such times. What we must decide to do is what uh, what we do with the time that is given us. Um, uh, and that speech is actually moved up from, it's in the shadow of the past chapter. It's in chapter two in the book. Frodo says this when he learns about the ring and it's, it plays very differently in the book. In the book, it's more like Frodo's like, man, this is, this is pretty heavy Gandalf. I, I wish the ring had never come to me. And Gandalf just kind of casually gives this back to him in the movie. They build it into this climactic relationship. The last conversation these two have in the trilogy. Solo together, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I, I didn't even realize that. That makes me even sadder. Um, yeah, and and they become these ring, words that ring through Frodo's head. They actually do this a lot in the movies where they take lines from Tolkien and and transplant them to other places. Oftentimes, they will take like benign lines and make them very meaningful in the film. And I think it's because Tolkien is just such a skilled writer that kind of. He just he happens upon beautiful lines kind of constantly, and I love that you can feel like these are people who had read the books their whole lives, and like these are lines that stuck with them, and so they place them in moments that express the emotion that line has like taken on in their lives, and I think that's that just that speaks to how smart an adaptation it is. 
Yeah, because that's that is also the sequence where you get that good little Gollum tease because yeah. Gollum is stalking them, and yeah, uh, Frodo has that whole thing. Where it's like it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. To pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Pity that stayed his, his hand. Yes. yes. Um. Yeah. All that stuff. I love that Gollum does not look like Gollum yet because they would not nail down his look until the two towers. But he sounds exactly like Gollum. <laughs> Andy Circus had yes. that down pat. Yeah, because I do love like there's something. You know, because the reason why Gollum is, like, in shadows every time he's shown in these movies is because they're, like, we're totally committed to to what Gollum was yet, visually speaking. But it works so much better that way, especially when you're watching the movies as they came out, because Gollum's such a famous character. Um, and obviously for me, with The Hobbit, I, like, already loved Gollum. So it's just like, a, what is Gollum going to look like? Like, how are they going to do Gollum? What is he going to be? And you have to you watch this whole movie, it's like... Fuck, I still don't know. Like, he's, 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 you see little bits, he's like on a weird log, he's getting tortured and going, and all that shit, but you just don't quite actually see him. Do you remember, really good do you remember the first shot they ever showed off of Gollum in the teaser for Two Towers? Not off the top of my it's, head, It's no. him crawling down the rock near to Frodo at the beginning of the oh, movie. Oh, yeah. That image, because mm-hmm. I just remember when the, the, that was what everyone wanted to see out of the Two Towers teaser, and they put it on the DVD for... The Fellowship of the Ring, and it was just like such a big event. We got that one shot of Gollum, and it's like, oh my god, he exists. But yes. Um, all right. The Bridge of Khazad Doom. You shall not pass. Fly, you fools. Just, yes. I, I, it doesn't, get, I don't even know. I'm so incoherent about this movie in some cases because I don't know what more there is to say that the movie has not said because that scene is just so fucking electric. One thing I will say as, like, the resident monster dude on this podcast, the Balrog is fucking sick as hell. Yes. The Balrog looks so cool in this goddamn movie. And, it's, and, and the Balrog is something you really need to nail because, I mean, kind of like with Gollum, it's not, he's not a goblin. He's not a dragon. Like, it's, you don't have a good reference point. He's not an elf or a dwarf for, like, what something like that should look like. Um... And so when you you say like oh it's a Balrog like what what Balrog is that? of like, Morgoth what? yeah like it's not you know and because it's also just something that doesn't exist in anything else like there's you know D and D has things that are kind of like Balrogs but like not exactly that and so it's a very uniquely Lord of the Rings creature um, and so yeah like the you have to really pull it off in that. It really feels like they leaned in on that, like, wreathed in shadow in flame kind of description that he has. And so they just, they fucking wait for it. And it looks just so fucking cool. Yes. Oh, my God. It's such a perfect little action sequence. Um, The music, the places where Howard Shore goes quiet or lets it cut out before it comes back in. Just that that pause when Gandalf is, is pulled down. And Frodo goes to grab him, and Gandalf, you see it on Ian McKellen's face as he realizes what's what he has to do, and fly, you fools. And it's yes. and he just lets go, and the stinger music comes in, and and then it's the No one of the great movie no's of all mm-hmm. time. And the scene that follows. Another great little Sean Bean touch in this is uh is that he's the one who he says, you know, let them have a moment um, when Aragorn is saying we need to move. Like Boromir feels for the hobbits so much in that scene. And Aragorn is right, of course. They have to run. But I love that Boromir has that human empathy in that moment. 
Yeah, like all of that stuff. Oh, the way Vigo, the way Vigo Mortensen plays that scene when when he's trying to pull Frodo away, but he's also you can see that they do this wordlessly, but you see the realization on his face of like I'm in charge now. I have to I have to push this company forward, and I don't know if I can do it. You know that self doubt mm-hmm. is played really well on his face in that scene. I love it. Yeah. Um, one other thing I was thinking about with this movie that's something I, there's like a little exchange between Gandalf and Frodo that I had never quite zoomed in on that happens before they go into the mine like as they're heading up I think to the wall to the mines and Frodo's they're kind of talking about like why are you so afraid to go in here and he and Gandalf says there are many evils in this world some of which are greater than me and some of which against I have not yet been tested and I just had never quite noticed that line before and there's something about this time I'm like Oh fuck! And it's something just like it. It's one of those lines where you are like, it communicates so much of that. Oh, this is demigod Gandalf kind of poking through. This is him, like, because then he has another line. Then when the Balrog is coming in, he's like, "This this foe is beyond all of you." And it's just like this is some next level. Like you don't get it. Yeah. This isn't this isn't an orc. Like this isn't a fucking cave troll. Like this is like a literal fucking demon spawned by Satan. Like like Lord of the Rings Satan. Let's say Balrog of Morgoth. Where you, you guys ain't up to fucking with this shit. No. Like this is this is a me thing. This is a Gandalf moment. You guys fucking run. And I love that um, they all listen to him. Like there's none of that. Like they, you don't have like Boromir being like, oh, I could do. I can fight the Balrog. No, they just they're all like, okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah, they're just like. Yeah, because it is that thing where Gandalf just communicates so much power and authority. It would be absurd for anybody to be like, I don't know, Gandalf. It's like, we fucked up. That cave troll seemed pretty badass, and we fucked it up. Like, I know Frodo almost got killed, but he's got Mithril. He seems cool. Like, if we team up together, we'll just like, nope. Gandalf says run. You fucking run. Yes. Oh, I love it. All right, Lothlorien. Lothlorien is a section of the movie and the books that I like the more I get older. I like more the more yes, I get older. I think it is one of the most ethereal, beautiful, emotional sections of the film. It is perfectly positioned there to be the down moment, the slow, quiet, contemplative stretch of film after the just breathless insanity of, of Moria and then the finale that's to come in Parth Galen. And it is... In the theatrical cut, it is the most the movie lets itself kind of luxuriate and slow down. And in the extended cut, they let it go even more. And it is, it's a beautiful stretch of film. And I, I'm going to have to read just a little bit of the book here. So mm-hmm. okay. you talk about Lothlorien for a second, Sean, while I find the passage I'm looking for. All right. Yeah. So the thing that's important about Lothlorien, as you said, is it's this break you get to really let everything sink in. And I love the sense of they constantly are talking to you about hopelessness and that you have to find hope. And it is this moment where all the characters have to sit and reassess, like, where are we? What has happened so far? And how the fuck are we going to keep on going forwards? Um, And for, like, Aragorn and Frodo in particular, they're the two characters that stand out for me here because they are the ones that... For whom, for, like, Aragorn, he has to be the co-lead of the subsequent movie, and then Frodo is the lead of this movie. And so they are at these, like, crossroads where Frodo has to decide, do I stick with the Fellowship or do I leave? And Aragorn has to reassess, am I capable enough a leader to replace Gandalf or at least serve a substitute to be able to keep this party going forward? And, of course, the answer that we arrive to is, yes, for Frodo, he has to leave. And no, Aragorn, you cannot leave this party. The party must disband. Yeah, it's... 
I love all the stuff with Galadriel into their minds and and mm-hmm. seeing these hidden fears and desires. I, I love how shaken all the characters are. I love the scene where they give all the gifts and how it's cut with them heading down the river in flashback. Um, all this is one of the ones where it's like. I don't even quite understand how you made the decision to cut this out of the theatrical cut because it is so good. And I, I, get, I know you don't need Gimli talking about Galadriel's hair and, and that he was given that, but how could you ever cut that moment out of the movie? It's so beautiful. But, um, okay, Lothlorien, I, I have to read something from the book because I don't know when else I'm going to get to do this because the chapter Lothlorien, which is chapter uh, six in book two of Lord of the Rings... Um, book two of Fellowship of the Ring. Each book of Lord of the Rings has two books, if you haven't read it. Um, exactly, yes. Anyway, uh, it ends with my favorite passage in the novel. Um, all three novels. It's really just one novel. Um, which means this is one of my favorite passages in the English language. So, um, And this scene is not literally adapted in the movie, but there's a, a little hint of it in the extended cut, and I think this emotion kind of permeates the scene. So that's why I just wanted to do this. Okay. All right, this is from page 343. At the hill's foot, Frodo found Aragorn, standing still and silent as a tree, but in his hand was wrapped a small golden bloom of Eleanor, and a light was in his eyes. He was wrapped in some fair memory, and as Frodo looked at him, he knew that he beheld things as they once had been in this same place. For the grim years were removed from the face of Aragorn, and he seemed clothed in white, a young lord, tall and fair, and he spoke words in the elvish tongue to one whom Frodo could not see. Arwin van Imelda Namare, he said, and then he drew a breath, and returning out of his thought, he looked at Frodo and smiled. Here is the heart of Elvindom on earth, he said, and here my heart dwells ever, unless there be a light beyond the dark roads that we still must tread, you and I. Come with me. And taking Frodo's hand in his, he left the hill of Saren Amroth and came there never again as living man. What a fucking knockout passage that is. Yeah. That last sentence, and came there never again as living man is one of the most like beautiful haunting sentences in the English language to me. It is one of the ultimate uses of the omniscient voice to just mm-hmm. to just put something in you. And I think that feeling is there in a lot of this Lothorian scene of of what yeah. it imparts onto the characters, you know? I mean, it does it just it feels so otherworldly, you know? I mean, it's it's if you're like looking at some of like the hero's journey like epic poem kind of stuff, it feels a lot like the equivalent of a like travel to the underworld kind of passage like when Odysseus goes to Hades and something like that like it just has this we are in another place um we are kind of removed from everything else we're kind of removed from the needs and like the fears of everything that has been happening outside of this area um to give the characters a moment of introspection and to kind of again, like, reassess their quest and, and, um, you know, Odysseus gets to question Tiresias and many of the people who fell in the Trojan War in that section in the Odyssey, and here Frodo gets to, you know, commune with Galadriel, who is, like, basically a goddess, um, and she gives him access to see the future in the way that Tiresias gives Odysseus access to see the future um, and make a prophecy for him. And so that stuff, like, it just so communicates that, again, that epic... Um, mythological kind of tone. Um, it's really poignant. It also does something for me, and this was one of the areas where, at the beginning of this discussion, when I said that one of the things I noticed this time more around was how sharp the structure is and how like clear the plotting is for Frodo's character arc. Like A lot of the stuff that I hadn't noticed before, I noticed more this time, comes at this section, 
um, where one, it's that after Gandalf dies and you have that scene of everybody like crying and everyone recuperating, you have that moment where they're like, wait, where's Frodo? And they turn and Frodo's off standing on his own on a cliffside kind of looking out. And I had never quite processed before that that's the moment in the movie where Frodo decides he has to be alone. That's the moment where we, I came like, we can't do this. Um, and because you have like the little buildups of that in some of like the conversation he has with Gandalf kind of gives you that idea that maybe that's where this is going. And that's where like, you know, and for the first time you're watching the movie, you would have no idea, but I think like it, like visually is putting that idea in your head that he has to, he has to separate himself from everyone else. And then everything in Lothlorien is him having to process that decision and that conversation he has with Galadriel. They kind of, for a lot of it, kind of talk around this fact, but they're all taught, but she and him are just talking about, do you have to be alone? Can you trust the people around you? Is that fair to them to put them in danger of the, the burden of the ring? Or are you the person who has to bear this burden and you cannot trust or rely, or not even just trust, but rely upon these other people? Or do you have to, as she says, like the, the, you know, the burden of a ring bearer, the ring bearer must bear alone. And that like whole conversation and dialogue he has with her is so powerful. And of course the answer he ultimately reaches is that he can't be alone. He has to at least be with Sam, but he can't put all these other random, like more or less random people. He can't risk their lives and he cannot put that burden on them, the burden that is on himself. Um, and that like whole stretch of like, it's stuff that I all knew was character material that this movie dealt with, but it never quite hit me as potently as it did this time. I think because I've, I appreciate some of that character stuff in the Lothlorien section more now than I think I ever did. Um, the mirror of Galadriel scene is is beautiful. Kate Blanchett plays mm-hmm. that so well. The moment where she com- you know goes full demigod for a moment and kind of shows her true face is is iconic for a reason. Um, it's it's a beautiful stretch of film, and you know Lothlorien is a section that, uh, as I said, we said before, the movie was originally in development as, at, at Miramax as two films. And uh, the first film would have had a structure actually very similar to the Ralph Bakshi animated movie where it would have ended at Helm's Deep uh, and saved Shelob for film two. Um, And that version cut Lothlorien entirely. So it was not in the original Peter Jackson drafts. And I see why if you had to get these down to two movies, Lothlorien is not a major plot section, right? But, oh, good God, I could not imagine this series without it. And it's one of the many, many reasons I am so thankful there was a studio desperate for a hit in New Line Cinema who was like, we'll do three. Let's do it. Um, Yeah. Because you got Lothlorien back. And this movie, this movie doesn't work without any component part of itself. And that includes Lothlorien. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get what I think is the best third act in motion picture maybe not best I, I will say favorite because I have not seen every movie um, but I sure. I fucking love when once they get on that river to the end it is just as you said Sean it's like a gymnast just so completely nailing the landing that you're kind of in awe for a couple of seconds right before you hold up the ten mm-hmm. um, it starts with the the statues of Argonath when there's when they're mm-hmm. rowing through and those again that's one of those moments that has no plot meaning but just the awe of seeing these statues of the old kings of Gondor. It's one of my favorite images in the movies. Um, the poster that has those two statues is one of my favorite movie posters. And I just think the the emotional weight of that scene on on Aragorn and Boromir and Frodo as they as they ride through and where they are heading and that we are into new territory and new land. 
that even that's just a beautiful little moment. It's so good. Yeah, that is the most I think Harryhausen moment in these movies. There's something about like the scale that that scene communicates. Um, just feels like it feels like it's a scene from Jason and the Argonauts because they're they're scale miniatures, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's just like it it's gorgeous, and it's just again it. it transports me so much into this fantasy world it also now i can't see that scene though and not think of naruto because there's a very similar <laughs> part in naruto where you have the first hokage and um uchiha Marada's statue that at their like you know the valley of the final confrontation where they're facing each other across this river well it only it only took us three and a half hours but you did get to naruto in this podcast so that's good like like dude it is like naruto just steals it honestly i mean it's it's a the context is very different of why the statues are there but it's two statues of like major figures in history standing um in a river and but they're facing each other instead of facing the outside world but it is it's naruto just does it also nice all right so you have that scene Everything that ha- else that happens on on Amon Hen and, and in Parth Galen here, you have obviously the Urukai. Sean, we forgot about a character. We forgot about Mr. Where's... Christopher Fucking Lee. Oh, as Saru yes. okay, yes. man. Saruman. I mean, we'll get into yeah. him more in the Two Towers because he tears that movie up. But Christopher Lee, I mean, he is—he's literally like the inverse of Ian McKellen in this. He is also just as perfect for that as Ian McKellen is, but he is like the dark other half of the coin. Yes. I, I will say, I, I think for the sake of time, we'll, let's table Christopher Lee okay. for two towers and do a full Saruman discussion for two okay. towers. Because this podcast is running yes. long. How about all that gnarly shit, though, in Isengard with the Urukai and like the birth of them and everything? Yes. It's, it's perfect. It's just fucking uh, God. That's also, you know, going back to that, um, the weapons and armor of Lord of the Rings book I read. I think maybe my favorite sword design in these movies is the Isengard Urukai, um, like broadsword. That's just this like, like looks like it's just this like big fucking slab of iron they just threw down and just like tongue 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 like heated it up, made one end really sharp, and then it just ends at this fucking harsh ninety degree angle at the top with a big fucking spike that shoots out, and then it comes back in and it is just this like like straight sword. Um, it's just the most. Like factory manufactured, brutal fucking looking sword I've ever seen in a movie. It's so evocative of uh, like the, the design of it tells you everything you need to know about Saruman and the Urukai and, and like what the philosophy is there. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, so the Urukai are coming, and we have the scene on the river. Um, major moments to talk about here, of course, is Boromir going after Frodo. Frodo's final conversation with Aragorn and then the climactic action sequence leading to the end. Let's start with with Boromir here. Uh, The scene where Sean Bean confronts Frodo is one of the great moments of acting in this trilogy because he has to go all the way to Boromir corrupted by the ring and saying horrible things and back to Boromir is a fundamentally very good man who hates that he did this and has that awakening and he has to sell both extremes of that at a certain point, playing off nothing because Frodo is invisible. It's a really, really yeah. interesting piece of acting, I think. Yeah, it's a great piece of acting. There's some really great line reads there, like, it could have been mine, it should be mine, and you will beg for death before the end. Like, those, those are line reads that I think about all the time, because it's just, they're really, they're really powerful. Yes. Um, Elijah Wood's great in that scene, too. I love that 
we're not sure if Elijah, uh, if, if Frodo hears Boromir apologizing because he's run away. Uh-huh. And the fact that Frodo might never know. I mean, he'll know later because people will tell him, but like he might never know that Boromir repented and that that really wasn't him. It was the ring, you know? And it's a, yeah. terif- it's a terrifying vision of what's to come with the corrupting power of the ring, right? You know? And it's why he can't be around other people. Exactly, yeah. They, you have that because it's, it leads into his scene with Aragorn where he has to have that conversation with Aragorn, um, which I don't believe that does not happen in the books, no. correct? No, Aragorn never... Made, yeah, they made it in the movies. But, oh my god, that scene in the movies when Aragorn comes over and, and wraps his hand around his and closes his hand on the ring and says, I would have followed you to the gates of Barad-dûr. And, and, and... Very fires of Mount Doom. Oh my god, I, I, I tear up thinking about it. It is such a beautiful piece of acting and the just... The purity with which Viggo Mortensen just uh, approaches that moment of 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 doing the heroic thing by letting Frodo go, which is the hardest thing to do, um, and Frodo having to say goodbye to this amazing man who he's met, you know, um, Strider. Who as my this is the only change I will complain about in the entire three films is the hobbits don't call him Strider enough. They start calling him Aragorn immediately in the books. They always call him Strider, and I kind of I love that that's kind of their pet name for him. So anyway, that's what it yeah, is. I will, I will say, because I am 100% with you, I will say fucking Samwise Gamgee holds down the fort on that yes. regard. He's, he's consistently in the Strider camp. He like At the very end of the movie, he's like, oh, Strider will, will take care of him. Don't worry, that's Mr. True. Frodo. It's like, fuck yes, Sam. This is why everyone loves you. You know what's up. Yes. Anyway, uh, oh man, I... I, I promised this on Twitter. We're running long. We'll do it next time with the two towers. I wanted to tell you guys about the video game trilogy based on Lord of the Rings I want to make. So, well, I'll pitch that in a, in a subsequent episode. Anyway, all just right. remind me to yeah. do that, Sean. Uh, okay. All right. So anyway, um, but that's so two beautiful scenes there, and then you know, I'm not going to say like the action scene at the end here is the quote unquote best in terms of. Like the choreography and everything, just because Moria exists and is right over there and is incredible. But I think in terms of the emotional weight of the scenes, watching the Urukai flood in and Aragorn go into town fighting them so Frodo can get away, and then Boromir fighting them so Merry and Pippin can be saved, all of that is I think the sense of like dread overwhelming everything, you know, the you feel the breaking of the fellowship here. And it is and it's amazing that in, you know, the Fellowship has been around for 90 minutes of screen time, and it is just excruciating to watch this band of friends be broken apart like this. That's, that's the magic trick that you're talking about, Sean, you know, to see it all come together so perfectly. Yeah, and, and I will say that for me, the Amon Hin fight is my favorite action scene in these movies. Okay, um, yeah. I think, and part of that is there's a sort of a personal preference of, well, I think like everything in the Moria scene is really well done. I personally don't really like watching... I mean, it's not that I don't like them, but my favorite fight scenes, both in... Actually, in movies and in video games, are not small people or, like, normal-sized people fighting big things. Um, so it's, like, all the normal yeah. fellowship people having to gang up on one troll. I think it's really well done. It's a great fight scene. But those kinds of fight scenes are never going to be personally my favorite kind of thing. I like even matched opponents. Oh, certainly. You know, in I terms like, of fight choreography, I, I should have said this... Amon Hen is definitely better because you get Aragorn and Boromir doing their thing and it's amazing. Yeah, so you have Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli and Boromir all going to town on the Urukai, and then you have the final duel between Aragorn and Lurtz, who's the sort of like the first Urukai that Saruman makes um, that's got like the cool bow and everything. 
Um, but yeah, that the fucking shot and like the the moment of when when you know Frodo's uh, the sting starts glowing blue, and I just love that whole the way it's all played out. Again, it's like building of suspense where Aragorn notices something off camera first, and you see that. Then it's a then reverse shot to Frodo noticing that Aragorn's noticing something, and then like close up on Sting pulling out Sting. It's blue. Oh fuck. And then Aragorn gets up, like Frodo runs away. He turns around, draws his sword in slow motion, holds it up so the sword is, like, horizontal, like, covering his face. Then, like, big fucking wide shot showing this just massive horde. Like, it, and before, it, like, when they were, it was this hunting party, you get the quick shots of them running through the woods. It looked like there were, like, a dozen of them. Now there's, like, 50 of them just, like, filling that whole field. And, and then, yeah, then back up to that kind of, like, mid-shot of Aragorn, and he swings the sword around very deftly. It's one of the things I love about The Witcher 3 um, is that all the sword combat in The Witcher 3 feels the way that, like, how Aragorn uses his sword is very, like, flippy and fluid. And then, yeah, then it's just, like, he just goes to town and just starts cutting through those motherfuckers. Like butter. So, it's so good. good. Yes, it's... Oh, it's so It's good. so good. It's, I don't know if it's my favorite fight scene in the entire trilogy just because Helm's Deep is there, but it's, it's kind of yeah, the only but, one where we but, get an intimate, like series of fights where there's not like a, it's it's the only one that's not a big pitch battle which is what helms deep and pelinor yeah. are exactly they're not fighting giant monsters and it's not a giant war yeah. scene it's it's a handful of people fighting like it's more you know they're outnumbered but it's not an army and so there's something about that that again like just for my personal taste i'm always going to go for those kinds of scenes more i get it because there's a more of that kind of one-on-one duel aspect and less of like the like huge like machinations of getting this whole war scene going like those scenes are awesome yeah. but like this kind of scene is always going to get my blood pumping and it's more. so character motivated you know aragorn mm-hmm. and boromir especially but also legolas and gimli they head into that sequence with such motivation behind their backs you know and it, it makes every swing great uh, something i i had forgotten about fellowship is how much slow motion there is in the movie there's a lot where they just kind of fuck with the, it's not really even slow motion it's they've they've slowed down the the scene slow motion is when you you know i would say when you shoot fast and slow it down they're not doing that but i agree when aragorn pulls out the sword and they just speed ramp it down a little bit ooh, per, chef's kiss mwah, it's perfect yes yeah um poor boromir oh boromir. okay you have the moment where mary and pippin realize frodo is leaving the music swells and and Mary nods at him. And then they come out and say, hey, hey, you know, we're over here. And they start throwing rocks. And then Boromir arrives. I love that you you see a little bit of the fight. And then you cut back to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. And you start hearing the horn of Gondor. Yeah. <sighs> and, and Boromir is doing his best. He's doing a great job. And fucking lurts. The sound effect of his bow as he pulls the arrow back... That is the greatest bow and arrow sound effect I've ever heard, and it is it hurts because you can just feel the kinetic motion he's building up as this is going to you know go drive into our into our beloved character's heart. Yeah, and God, it's just one of my favorite death scenes in any in any movie. Just it's because it's so it's so brutal because it's just prolonged. It's just like that first arrow is. Like, Oh, and you know it's yeah. done as soon as he gets hit by that first. Well, because the first one is right oh, in the heart. Shit. The other ones are just for yeah. fun, for lurch. Yeah, not for, and, yeah, yeah. So, but then you know, and he just kind of falls, and he gets back up, and he keeps on fighting them. And uh, 
And yeah, the, the, it's like the other arrow. I love, you know, the. I think it's maybe the third arrow shot is the one where, you know, it's the close-up on his face and you just hear the sound effect and the, re, like, the reaction of him getting hit. You don't even see him, the arrow hitting him. Like, all that's so well done. And it's just that... I just... I don't think I've ever really seen... I'm trying to think of other movies where, like, major characters are killed by arrows and it's not a very common no. death. Um and so it's just having these fucking big shafts of wood sticking out of his goddamn chest. It's pretty gruesome. Like it's a, it's a very like, it's a very visually powerful um, image. Uh, it, you know, it's it's much more striking than just someone being shot and there's like you know blood coming out of a hole in their arm or something. It's there's this big shaft of wood sticking out of his chest and 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 it's that it's just like you know he like kind of touches them a little bit and it kind of shakes like it's just there's a physicality to it and like a tactileness to the the having these arrows lodged in him that is really powerful and just very brutal yeah then you get aragorn versus lurch it's a great great fight scene i have a funny story about this sean so this okay. was the day the two towers came out in 2002 so a year later this was December 16th, 2002, and um, I was in fourth grade, I was in Mrs. Grill's class, and I, oh my god, I don't know how I remember this so vividly, it's just anything related to the Lord of the Rings, I guess, but I remember it was like the beginning of the day, and she's asking us like about, I don't know, you know, elementary school teachers like ask you about life or whatever, right? And I think... Yeah, that must have been a very interesting conversation. What do you think about life? <laughs> not like that. I think it was like, are you guys, are, you know... I don't know. It was something about like activities or plans for the weekend or something like that, right? Okay, yeah. Okay. And I said, "Oh, Lord, you know, Two Towers comes out today. I'm so excited for it." I, I was the nerd in class who said that. Um, and one of my friends was like, "Oh, yeah, yeah." And we started talking about it, and and I think the teacher said, "Oh, why do you love these movies?" And I had a friend who started explaining he loved the fight scenes, and he starts going into, in graphic detail, explaining every blow <laughs> in the fight between Aragorn and Lurtz. And this was, so fourth grade, we're ten years old, he's describing like, you know, Boromir takes one arrow to the chest, then he gets one to the gut, and she, like, he goes through all of it, and then it's like, and he stabs him, and then Lurtz has the shield, and his neck is against the, the tree, but he gets out, and he behead. and I think it was, he was about to describe the beheading, and she cut him off and said, Ned, this is inappropriate. We're not going to talk about Lord of the Rings anymore. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's so rad, Mrs. G cut his Gergard cut his arm off, and then he stabbed him in the chest. But then Lurch just like grabs his arm. He goes, yeah. no, "That was that was the moment where she cut him off. Was when he's pulling himself forward on the sword. <laughs> it's so good. That part is so good. Oh man, because that is the part that like." I think is the stroke of like everything up to that point is like a really well done, like very sort of brutal movie sword fight. You know, it's not like a duel. It's a like, you know, I mean, half of it, they don't even fucking use the swords. They're like throwing like daggers and shields and punching each other and stuff. Um, but that finisher of stabbing him in the chest and then Lurch just grabs the sword and pulls Aragorn in and just, yeah. <laughs> so Aragorn pulls the sword out and cuts his head off. It's just such a creative finisher and it just it's so evocative to what Lurtz is it's just like big like bulking fucking brute of a monster um oh it's just it's such a strong such a strong finish to that fight you know most fights sword fights it just a dude gets stabbed not Lurtz Lurtz gets his arm cut off he gets stabbed he's just like nope this is fine this is fine and then it's not until his head cuts off that he's finally down and then Aragorn and Boromir say goodbye Sean tell me is there a character who has a better final line 
in the history of movies you have seen than Boromir, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, captain. my king. My king. It's, it's gorgeous. That whole sequence, you know, because it's also, you know, it's, it's this payoff to one of the, like, you know, the character back and forth throughout this whole movie where you have that scene um, back in Rivendell where uh, Boromir goes and picks up the shards of Narsil and Aragorn's there, like, reading a book. Um, and they have that whole little exchange before Boromir knows who Aragorn is um, that kind of sets up this sense of, like, you know, Aragorn is not comfortable with his heritage, but he, like, values it in this very kind of sacred way. And Boromir more, like, is this kind of guy who feels like he's living for the moment and maybe needs to understand and respect more of the history because the fact that he doesn't respect history is why he's not aware of like taking the ring is a bad fucking plan dude like you're not the first guy who had this goddamn idea and has never worked before um and so you know they have like kind of that competing thing where Boromir compared cares about Gondor now Aragorn cares about the Gondor of the past and this moment is where it pushes Aragorn over to you know, like he's still in the two towers. He has some work to do to fully accept. I'm going to like take the throne, but this is the moment that like I think dispels most of his like self. He's going to fight for it, whether or not he's going to rule. He's never going to stop fighting. Exactly, because so much of this movie is it, Aragorn's character is like he's kind of mired in this self doubt. Like he he knows that he wants to help Frodo. He needs to take care of this ring business. That everything beyond that, he's not sure of. And this is where he's like feels like he's willing now to take on the legacy of of Elendil and Isildur and Gondor. Um, and yeah, it's just a beautiful moment. It does so much narrative stuff. Also, um, and it also just makes me tear up every time I see it. It's so the the shot. There's a shot where Boromir has passed, and and Aragorn goes in to kiss him on the head. And I have the you know image on my phone. I don't know if you can even see that, but yeah. you know what image I'm talking about. I yeah, I know the shot. Yeah, it is such a painterly shot it is maybe my favorite single composition in the film the 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 way his body is leaned where boromir's head is in the frame the the pile of leaves beneath him it it looks like a medieval like painting you know what i mean like a like a big uh-huh. canvas that unfurls um it's it's such a great shot you know this is something i think we'll need to talk about in the sequels when we get there sean is that lord of the rings is kind of one of the few big budget Hollywood movies that is comfortable with displays of genuine affection between men. Yes. It's one of the only, yeah. And I think it's, it, 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 there were so many gay jokes about it in the early two thousands because we were all horrible and made way too many awful gay jokes in the early two thousands. I feel like Lord of the Rings, I feel like if these movies came out now, there would be a section of the internet devoted to breaking that down. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because it's, yeah. it's not homoeroticism. It's, it's, it's affection between men, which, like, is even kind of more taboo in mainstream cinema, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, it, it feels like it, it comes very naturally from Lord of the Rings' heritage of, like, you know, stuff like ancient Greek poetry and, and ancient Norse poetry, like stuff like Beowulf. Um, I mean, honestly, like, for most of the history of humanity, like, affection between men was a totally natural thing that media like they're like like you know culture and media depicted all the time and so you know like odysseus cries like odysseus has friends he cares about things he cares about his family he cares about the other men around him you know like the true of beowulf is true of all those kind of characters um and it was not uncommon to have you know dramatic scenes where male characters break down into tears 
now in popular media that is very uncommon and yeah like this kind of bond in this real emotional like affection between male characters is so uncommon or if it is depicted it has to be depicted in the way that I, I think it's like an authentic way to depict it for how modern society operates unfortunately which is it has to always be disguised behind things and it has to be subtext and it has to be something that's like there's there's some top level thing of business or something that occurs to give an excuse for the affection to exist whereas you know the the time and the history and like the the things that lord of the rings is meant in trying to evoke you didn't need that like men could just be affectionate with each other because human beings have emotions exactly uh you know i think it's it's notable that these movies are coming out at the same time as michael bay is starting to rise as a, as a star director and uh-huh. and you know in that particular conversation michael bay wins out the the no homo style of movie making which is what michael bay is all about which is he he wants to only deal with men but he does he wants to make it abundantly clear that they hate each other because if they don't yes. it's gay and that's bad according to michael bay right and i feel like that is still like we're better than that now on the whole but i feel like that is kind of a mode in which in which homosocial bonds tend to operate in in films now, um, but we'll get into that more. There's there's a lot with Frodo and Sam that I think is very beautiful in that regard. But anyway, uh, and then the the final scene starts right after that. The last five minutes of this movie, it starts with Frodo standing on the beach after he hears the flashback dialogue from Gandalf. There's a cue that begins on the soundtrack. It is called "The Breaking of the Fellowship." On the extended edition soundtrack, it's called "The Road Goes Ever On Part One." If you want to go find the clip of music. Um, it is my favorite cue uh, in any piece of Western film scoring. Um, the only thing that would hold it back from being my favorite cue in all of film scoring is there's this dude in Japan named Joe Hisaishi who exists. Um, right. And the films of Hayao Miyazaki. Um, the, that score that plays over the end of this film, which includes a, a motif that is never used in the sequels, um, that is, is, it, is re- it is reserved for the end of this film... Uh, and I think it's there to show the resolve of the characters heading into the the next chapter of the story. Uh, and I think it's smart that it's not used again, but it's part of what gives this movie its unique emotional power is there is music here that is reserved for this scene and this scene only. Um, and for a big, you know, Wagnerian piece of music that uses a lot of recurrence and building on motifs, that's actually fairly rare. Um, it, it's a glorious piece of film scoring. And the scene that underlies it with Sam, you know, swimming out to meet Frodo... And Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas getting ready to go hunt some orc. It's so good. Yeah! Little chance of success. What are we waiting for? So good. Anyway. I mean, what do you think about it? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, everything you said. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful piece of music. Um, and just the... Man, it, you know, we kind of just... We already talked about it earlier about how it's this weird magic trick this movie has of being able to have this, like definitive ending even though it's the ending of part one of a three-part thing um and yeah but that just the relationship between frodo and sam which is like not front and center for most of this movie like again sam is mostly used for comic relief he doesn't have a lot of like big emotional material yet um most of that comes in two towers in return of the king but they but he's there enough and he his like affection for frodo comes through so powerfully that that moment of where he's running out, like, you know, getting coming off of already tearing up for Boromir's death, like, it just, like, keeps that emotional tur- torrent going, you know? Um, it's really powerful. And then just for me, the last shot in the last moments of Frodo and Sam standing and looking over 
at Mount Doom and seeing where they have to go. Um, just such a powerful climax. It, I love where it hits me so. I hard. love where the music goes there too. Where we get into the credits, Peter Jackson's card comes up, and before they get into the Enya song, "May It Be," which is a beautiful song. I, I like the songs that end these movies very much. They let just the main theme of the movie play with the children's choir singing it. It's a great moment of decompression, I think, um, because it is such an emotional ending. You know, I'm glad you're with you're with me, Samwise Gamgee. Um, and as they walk down on the road to Mordor, like it does feel like if there were no other movies, that would fucking suck. But at the same time, like there's a story here: the story of Frodo Baggins choosing to go it alone into Mordor to do what must be done. You know. And it is such a powerfully told story. I mean, the magic trick is that in most three-act structure, you define this as what the hero sets out to do in the beginning, they achieve at the end. Frodo doesn't achieve anything technically in this movie. He doesn't technically achieve anything in the second movie because his main goal is to destroy the ring, right? And yet the sense of achievement is so overwhelming because I think what Frodo's real character journey is in this film is making that decision to go it alone and do what has to be done here and bear that burden. Bearing the burden is the goal and he bears it by the end of this film. And then the next film is about what that does to him, you know? Yeah. And, and then also it's just very true to, you know, Lord of the Rings to me is one of those stories that is very much about the journey and not as much about the destination. Um, Because, you know, it is what's, because ultimately Frodo doesn't, cast the ring spoilers if you haven't seen return of the king yeah sorry (laughs) but you know he doesn't do it at the end he can't ultimately at the end he cannot bring himself to cast the ring into the fires of mount doom and you need like that kind of push from Gollum, and then maybe i forget what the name of the like supreme god is of lord of the rings world but like maybe he kind of helps whatever you interpret that ending but that's but the point of that isn't that like Frodo sucks right. and you know little people actually can't get shit done that's not the point the point is that like what mattered was getting it to that mm-hmm. point what mattered is being able to endure all the way to the end and being able to to go on that journey and and experience that change and so you know Frodo not accomplishing the task in this movie one of the reasons why I think it's still manages to feel like a fully complete arc is because the way it is designed is to convey that message not the message of the thing you need to do is get that ring into the fire the message is the thing you need to do is be able to endure in times of of darkness which fellowship of the ring does such a good job hitting so i think that's probably a good place to leave it um at almost four hours almost four hours it's you know that's also true of the movie (laughs) it's very Um, true i mean fellowship of the ring is three and a half Two Towers is 3.45, and Return of the King is a tight four hours, ten minutes, I think, is the, is the runtime. Well, we'll be back at some point with The Two Towers, which is a magnificent film that I'm very excited to talk about. Yes, I have spring break at the, is the last week of March for me. So, so what so date does that start can, for you? Um, the, whatever the last week of March is. Okay. So I can, I can promise that... If, if there's not a time I can find to watch The Two Towers between now and then, I will definitely be able to watch The Two Towers during spring That's break. Fine. My spring break is the 18th to the 22nd. Yours is the 25th? Okay. Yes. I was hoping they would line up and we could just do the last two and save them for later. <laughs> but that's okay. We'll figure it out. Um, you, can, you, can, you can watch the movies the week of the 18th. Okay. I'll watch the movies the week of the 25th, and then we'll figure it out when we actually record It's them. all good. Uh, 
we'll just stay in touch about that. We will not. Be, I could not do the two towers next week either, Sean. So it's okay. Um, yes, we will do. They're long fucking movies. It is hard to find time as an adult person <laughs> to be able to spend time watching a movie that's over three hours long. Well, we will get there. We will watch the two towers soon. We will get to that. We will do something else next week. We'll find a topic to do. I've got lots of ideas. We need to powwow about future ideas for for just general topics and stuff. Um, and you know, we are barreling towards podcast 300. So if you want us to do a stupid topic, like top 10 books, we can do it. Just let us know. Fuck man. I need to go. God damn it. I need to go look at some books. Fuck. Why did we do this?